Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the Gwen to my Stefani, Lauren Ash. How you doing? I am jazzed. Okay. Yeah, listen, I haven't researched a case in a while. It's been a while since we've uh, done the old switcheroo. Yeah, we were talking yesterday about how long it's been, and <laughs> I genuinely don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, they blur. They blur after time. Um, but yeah, this one's very close to my heart. I mean, they all are, but I, but this one especially. So I'm, I'm jazzed, and I'm so jazzed. In fact, I think you're going to really enjoy this. So today, it's my birth. It's my birthday week. My of birthday. Course. This will air after my birthday. My birthday's February fourth. But uh, today is I'm kicking off my birthday week, and I knew that. So I was like, I have to get my my notes done the night before. Because I was going to get my nails done again to get my 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 long claws uh, put back on, and I it's 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 you know it's an adjustment to type and whatnot. So I did it last night, and it was great. I reached my goal. Great. So I put on the, I got the nails put on today, and I was telling myself get them a little shorter than last time because it was a bit of a, a hassle. And then I was like, why these look gorgeous? You know what I mean? I've got I've I've branched out into some nail art, some like you know very oh, very uh, delicate nail art. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having one of those typical ash days. Nobody gonna break a must ride. I come home and I'm getting ready for, uh, the record and I decide, you know what? I'm so jazzed, uh, about my research, my research. Yeah. I'm going to wear one of our jazzed shirts. As, Why not? As, as we're wont to do. And so I put it on and then I went to brush my teeth. And I forgot that when you got the nails on, holding a toothbrush is a is a is a learning curve. Long story short, it was almost I can't even it did like a triple axel in the air. Like if, if this was figure skating, 
that toothbrush flew and it just went all over me. And I thought, it's okay. It's okay. I can get it off. I can get it off of myself. So I'm getting a towel and some water. And I'm and then it, to quote Ross from Friends, it created a paste, uh, <laughs> a paste of the paste. And so then I was like, no, no, it'll still work. This will be a funny story. I'll just wear it for the show. It'll be a funny story. Then I spilt makeup in it. And then it really became a paste. And I decided to change. And I put on my eat the patriarchy with a side of fries shirt. Because uh, that felt like at this point, um, that was the only way. You know? Yeah. Uh, first off, uh, classic Lauren. Classic Lauren. Really, truly, um, yeah. And also... Thank you so much for referencing that moment from Friends, because that is, as you know, one of my favorite moments in that entire series is that whole bit with Ross in the pants. Oh, yeah. Oh, him in the make paste pants. Like, I, I can't. That episode. Oh, God, that is a lot. Well, since you've already had, like, a bit of a day. Yeah. <laughs> I should ask, what you drinking over there? Well, listen, we're rounding out dry January, um, and as yeah. there were scattered showers for me during dry <laughs> January, <laughs> yeah, but only a couple, uh, but I decided that I wanted to keep my wits about me because I got a lot of reading, and of again, course. this one's real important to me, so um, I, I've got a Diet Coke in one hand, and I just got a, I've got my best friend's Las Vegas uh, mug with water in the other, you know what I mean? Of course. Don't ask well, how much caffeine I've already had today because it's a high number <laughs> of milligrams. But we're hey, good. look, just two women getting, getting by. by. Uh, I as well. I've got the water, you nice. know. Yeah, and then I'm just doing a folk. I got a I got uh, a classic coke. Uh, fake Coke, and it's it's nice. It's what I need. It's going down right. I just wanted the caffeine and a little bit just to. I, I, this is a bit of a test. Oh. Because caffeine will help me. Like when I'm first waking up, I don't usually do any sort of a caffeine before noon. But if it's a if it's a day, then I will, af like after lunch, they, caffeine starts rolling. But I, could, I can have caffeine. I could have a pop soda, you know, or yeah. a Slurpee or something late at night. And I can go to bed. And I can go to sleep, no problem. I've always been like that. Lately, I've had a lot of drinks later at night. And I find like I've been not falling asleep for hmm. hours. And so I commented about it to my husband. And he just very smartly turned to me and went, do you think there's a connection between you not being able to sleep and having caffeine? And I went, late at night like an old person? No, I'm fine. Because I tease him mercilessly because I once once was like hey do you want to have like uh do you want me to grab you like a coke or dr pepper or something and he just went at this hour it was 7 p.m and i laughed <laughs> so hard because he wasn't trying to be funny uh but it turns out he was uh he was genuine he was like at this hour i just couldn't um and so i'm trying to test i'm trying to test myself to see like if i have this am i gonna struggle going to sleep or not it's a question. Well, I like what I like is that this is a this is potentially lose lose like <laughs> yeah but yeah. at least then you'll know at least then I, you'll know well I need to know because it turns out he also I don't know if he did this research on his own or if he happened upon it it turns out that apparently if you have a certain amount of vitamin D 
after a certain hour, that can give you insomnia and make it so you can't fall asleep. Well, that's interesting because I have a a very long-standing vitamin D deficiency, which I really need to get better about. And uh, I have insomnia all the time. So it's it's weird that maybe I'm eating at the wrong time of day. I'm not eating steaks at night. What am I talking about? (laughs) I'm not, well, I'm not I, dipping uh, into a, a whole thing of broccoli at 11. Yeah. Come on. Well, one of, one of my vitamins is specifically calcium with vitamin D. And in the days where I hadn't been sleeping right away, I had been taking those vitamins late at night. Mm. So I'm like, oh, fuck, is that it? So then I was like, oh, great. I tried to do something good for myself and I ended up screwing myself. Well, lesson learned, stop being good to myself. No. Uh, But I'm like, now I just need to know that's what it is because if so, I'll just have them earlier in the day. But I need need to feel young. (laughs) Let me, dear God body, let me have my Coke late at night. Let me have my Cokes. Let me have a late night Slurpee because I like kids go to bed. We, We watch a movie. They interrupt us 80 times because kids, uh, but I want I want that Slurpee and then go to bed and sleep. I want that to still be a thing, but I'm worried that now that the clock has ticked past 40, that I'm concerned that this is one of those things where it's like, you know, you have a, you go out when you're 19, you get super hammered. I mean, in Canada where 19 is legal. Thank you very um, much. You get super hammered and you wake up the next day and you don't even, you're just like, I feel great like a million bucks. And then you go out when you're like 29 and the next day you're like, oof, I don't feel great. And then you go out at 39 and you wake up the next day and you're like, I feel bad. It's it's okay. It'll pass. And then the next day you feel like death warmed over because it's the day after the day after the older you get, I find. And I just need to prove. <laughs> I just need to prove to myself that I haven't, that I'm not trying to sabotage myself. Let me still have my drinks. That's all I'm asking. That's I believe asking. in you, and I believe in the universe, and I believe in goodness. Let the woman have her drinks. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. You are, uh, as always, the sweetest. Now I've been told, uh, and by that I mean uh, through Zoom and. Through the email I get in our timelines, uh, we've got a lot to cover today, <laughs> which isn't much of a surprise <laughs> based on our researcher. <laughs> I so hard. And this no. is, I will say, I do think this is my shortest page count ever, but I'm worried. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be oh. long. Look, oh, I, God. I want nothing more than to be like, you have nothing to worry about. But I also swore I'd never lie to you. I know. <laughs> so I know. I, and I appreciate so I that. I appreciate that. That it's uh, it's gonna have moments, and you know what? I think you're doing your best. I think it's great that you're trying to keep us wrangled in. I think it's great. So we're just gonna we're gonna shock everybody, especially the people who knock ahead thirty minutes, uh, and just get right into it. We're going to do it. Yeah. We're but just going to go for it. if you're familiar with any of the episodes I've researched, this is not abnormal because we're like, we got to get into it. And then I still teeter at three hours. So I know. Yeah. But this is, again, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I've, I've dialed it back. I'm hoping. Oh, oh I, I feel like it's still going to be every bit a Laura Nash episode as, uh, as they always are. In the not best a good way. editor. 
not a good editor is what I've learned. Now, I know that's not true. I'm not going to speak about myself negatively. I'm going to say this. I'm becoming a better editor. I'm going to say this. <laughs> Your page count was in the 60s when we first it talked about this. About this case, yeah. And you've got that down well below half. So I do. to me, that's a great editor. I'm doing better. You're right. You're I right. Think you, I think you're doing great. You're right. I think you're doing great. I got to refocus that lens. Yeah. Uh, today, of course, we are speaking about Sarah Jones. Now, I am particularly excited about this because I knew nothing about it. Uh, I had not heard of it at all. Lauren brought it up to me uh, in a live <laughs> brunch that we did just yesterday. She commented about it and I was like, so that's from like the 70s, right? And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> so uh, clearly... I know very little about this, so I cannot wait to get going. I have a synopsis here written by the editor herself. Thank you. I will not let that go. So, last year, a tragedy occurred on the set of indie film Rust. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was fatally shot and director Joel Souza was seriously wounded when a gun went off in actor Alec Baldwin's hand. And while the investigation into the incident is still ongoing, it has reignited an extremely important conversation about on-set safety within the film and television industry. And it is impossible to have a discussion about the serious safety flaws within this industry without talking about the horrific 2014 onset death of Sarah Jones. With a laundry list of culpable parties, the twists and turns throughout this case are truly unbelievable. Not to mention everything that has happened since the case was closed in 2016 and fell from the public eye. So join Lauren Ash as she keeps... Sarah's story alive, highlighting an industry desperately in need of updated safety standards, and adds her voice into the conversation about protecting film and TV crews in hopes of reminding the world that no one should ever have to risk their life to make a movie. What Lauren I like Ash is, investigates. Thank you so much. What I like is that we write our own synopses and we've started speaking in the third person because we know <laughs> the other person is reading them and we just have no qualms about it. That's what I like. That's what I like. Look, we are who we are. This became what it's become. <laughs> yep. It's a life of its own. It's yeah. a life of its own, this show. Yeah, it is. Life of its own. But listen, it's a gift in our lives. Yes. So let's get into it because <clears throat> we got a lot to get through. So. Often when people think of onset deaths, Brandon Lee, who is accidentally shot when filming The Crow, is the first name to come to mind. But if you work in the film and TV industry like I do, one of the first names that's going to come up for us is Sarah Jones. I'm unsure about how much people outside of our industry know what happened to Sarah, and once I started digging into her case, I felt compelled to cover it on the show because the details that I learned shocked even me, someone who is directly connected to this world. So now, I am proud to take this opportunity to do my part to help keep Sarah's story alive. Film and TV is something we all love. Entertainment is a rich part of our culture and was especially vital during the pandemic with people at home, often with the television as their main source of entertainment. Movies and TV shows whisk you away to different worlds, times, and places, but it's important to remember that this magic is created by teams of hundreds of people working extremely long days, often being asked to do things that risk their own safety or well-being. And we do it because we love it. 
but we shouldn't have to risk our lives in the process. So let me share with you now, dear listeners, about Sarah Jones, Onset Safety, and how changes need to be made to protect every cast and crew member working on every set. I, look, I'm I'm already I'm already pulled in. I love it. Okay, just good. know well, your pa- your passion is there. Your okay, passion's good. on point. I want listen. If I if for nothing else, a for effort. Yeah. So, while accidents can obviously happen in any workplace, accidents that happen on film and TV sets often have the possibility to be more serious than in other places. From 1925 to 1930, 55 people were killed, and almost 11,000 others were injured during film productions. Safety standards have been implemented over the years, dramatically lowering the instances of injuries or deaths, but obviously they have not eliminated the risks. The Associated Press reported that from 1990 to 2016, at least 43 people died on sets in the United States, and more than 150 were left with life-altering injuries. These numbers, however, were determined by scouring through data from workplace and aviation safety investigations, court records, and news accounts. But the Associated Press also found several instances in which major accidents either weren't reflected in investigation records or did not appear in an OSHA database of the most serious set accidents. OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It's going to be referenced a lot in this episode. It doesn't okay. only pertain to film and TV. It's it That's like a much larger, you know, it covers factory safety, all those things. But it, it does obviously mandate film and TV, and we're going to talk about it a lot. But it's interesting, again, um, that when the Associated Press was trying to come up with this list, that that there was some big holes. So several fatal onset accidents in the U.S., all outside of the traditional production centers of California and New York, were missing from this OSHA database, the most glaring being the 1993 shooting death of Brandon Lee. That, of course, was during the filming of The Crow. That omission came despite OSHA officials in North Carolina compiling a 1,500-page investigative file on Lee's death. An agency spokesman for OSHA blamed a clerical error, but that's interesting to me because this wasn't discovered until 2016, and we know that he died in 1993, and it just wasn't in there for all of that amount of time. And you see where I'm going with this, is that if something that's that big was was kind of left out— how many what else small is being things are ignored? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Let's also remember that these numbers don't reflect American productions shooting internationally. At least 37 people have died in international filming accidents between 2000 and 2016, including a worker killed August 26, 2016 on the Budapest set of Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel. There was also two stuntmen who drowned in India in November 2016. Many more people have been seriously injured and one issue that that exists is that there's no entity that compiles the data on international filming accident in, accidents. So the Associated Press they made their tally solely on news accounts and lawsuits. And speaking from my own experiences and knowledge, again, which I'm going to be bringing to the forefront throughout all of this, as somebody who has worked in this industry a very long time, um, cast and crew members are often encouraged to downplay their injuries by productions. So it's very feasible to me that there could be hundreds or even thousands of injuries that have never been reported over the years, especially oh. internationally. It's, it's you know, I think it would be very easy for those things to kind of just slip between the cracks. The, the Associated Press also found... 25 instances of amputations occurring during productions between 1990 and 2016. 
One took place in 2013 when a worker on the TV show The New Girl lost part of his ring finger when he was cut by a saw that had an anti-kick safety device removed for unknown reasons. This brings up something important to remember. Onset injuries and deaths are not only from stunts gone wrong. Sound stages are essentially mini construction sites that involve swing sets, swing sets which are constantly changing. So I'm, if you're just tuning in for the podcast for the first time, my name is Lauren Ash, and I played Dina on a show called Superstore for six years. I will reference this from time to time for clarity's sake and to give examples uh, to what I'm talking about. Um, on Superstore, if you watched the show, if we went to a restaurant, for example, on the show, yeah. they would build that on a soundstage. The crew would build it. It's phenomenal. And then we shoot the scene, and then it would get torn down, and then the next oh. day they'd be building something else. It's like it's film and TV magic when you see it from the inside is so phenomenal. And it's truly because there are so many gifted, talented people on these crews. But it's important to remember again that that when you're constantly constructing and deconstructing things, obviously there is uh, some risk that goes along with that. Um so as I've said before, no one should ever have to risk their life or physical safety to make a movie or television show. The safety of every single person on set should be paramount to every producer. And I know it seems funny to even have to say it, but sadly, the bottom line can become more important to some producers than the people required to achieve it. And what I'm about to talk about is a story that never should have happened and that should never happen again. But before I get to that, I'm going to start by addressing another story that never should have happened, and that is, of course, the Rust incident. Rust was an approximately uh, $7.5 million movie, which is uh, considered an, a low-budget indie these days, believe it or not. It was being shot at Bonanza Creek Ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Many productions have shot there, Lonesome Dove, 310 to Yuma, All the Pretty Horses with Matt Damon, many more. On October 12, 2021, Actor and producer Alec Baldwin had a safety demo with armorer and prop assistant Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Alec felt good about it, didn't think there was any red flags. Uh, Hannah was working in the armorer role, which is taking care of the guns and ammunition, and she was also an assistant prop person on the film. Her dad is Thel Reed, who is very respected in the industry. He has worked in countless movies as an armorer, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 310 to Yuma, Django Unchained, LA Confidential, Tombstone, the list goes on and on. Basically, Hannah grew up around guns and around her dad doing this job. She learned under him. I'm just giving this all for context. On October 16th, 2021, uh, they had a very big day on set. There were several major shootouts set to be filmed that day. And on that day, there were two accidental gun discharges. Prop master Sarah Zachary was loading a gun and it went off in her hands. There was no projectile in the gun at the time, so no one was hurt. And she self-reported the incident. The other uh, the discharge that happened was with Alec Baldwin's stunt double, but I was unable to get much information on that. Um, it sounds like it was a similar situation because no one was hurt. Um, but again, a gun sure. went off when it was not supposed to. Um, now, there was tension brewing on set. During their second week of filming, some of the crew had concern about hotels. And this is a common issue for crews who are working on location. On this production, they wanted hotels closer to set for them to use after 12-hour long days. Film and TV production hours, side note. Historically, there is no limit to how many hours you can shoot in a day. Some productions can literally shoot 18, 20, 22 hours, and then you're supposed to drive home. 
In 2014, 48-year-old Longmire crew member Gary Joe Tuck was killed when he fell asleep at the wheel and rolled his car on a New Mexico highway after working an 18-hour shift from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. And after that, one of his fellow crew members on Longmire, M. Perry, wrote a public plea about changing things. She wrote that she had once worked 102 hours in one week on a film. And like so many other crew members, she wanted the overtime to be able to continue to work in the industry. Um, she didn't want to be seen as a complainer, that kind of vibe. Um, of and she pleaded that they needed to keep up the conversation on safety to initiate change. Following Tuck's death, the companies behind, behind Longmire, which are Netflix and Warner Horizon Television, implemented new safety measures by providing charter buses to take the crew to and from remote shooting locations. Um, the decision was applauded by crew members, but not all companies do that. In 1997, camera assistant Brent Hirschman was killed when he fell asleep at the wheel and slammed his car into a utility pole. Hirschman had just worked a 19-hour day, which had been preceded by four 15-hour workdays. A petition was launched to lobby for Brent's rule, a maximum 14-hour workday, but it did not work. <sighs> I also need to mention, casts and crews have certain amounts of turnaround time. So what this means is actors get 12 hours. So if I wrap at 9 p.m., they cannot call me to work again until 9 a.m. the next day. But crews, they don't get that much time. <sighs> crews uh, under IATSE, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which is the crew union, has been fighting for all crew members to get 10-hour turnarounds. But some, depending on their job, only get eight or nine hours. But the important thing to remember for both cast and crew is that all of those rules can be bypassed by productions paying penalties. So I've worked on shows before where I've gotten a six-hour turnaround. Um, and they basically just have to to pay a penalty to you. And I'm, I'm not sure, again, what the logistics of that are for the production. But it's called a forced call. And while some productions don't like to do it, um, it really just depends on the show and how far behind they are, et cetera. Uh, even then, crew can be asked to fudge their time cards. And uh, there is a crew member that I spoke to who told me the following about their experiences with this. And this is what they told me. As below-the-line workers, we are often asked to overlook safety measures or even legal things like our time cards. In a pinch or rush, we are asked to get things done, and if your department head doesn't stand up for you, you can find yourself skipping steps either through forgetfulness or flat-out being told to forget it. We're told we can't take a hotel room because productions aren't contractually obligated to give us a room or a ride home unless we have worked 14 hours. Not just 14 hours has elapsed. So... That would include 14 hours would include lunch. So oh. meaning they would have to work 14 hours plus lunch. We're asked to fudge our time in if we're looking at a forced call so they won't pay penalties. This isn't every production, but it's enough productions that when it's the UPM, you don't feel like you can say anything in opposition. You're concerned you'll be labeled as difficult and some heads of department just flat out won't have you back. I will clarify some of the terminology I just used. The UPM is the unit production manager, who is the primary administrator on a film set. A line producer creates the budget for the movie or the show, uh, details all the expenses, but the UPM puts the plan into action. It's the top position when it comes to below-the-line costs that all film productions have. Below-the-line refers to the separation of production costs between the cast, writers, director, producers, who would all be considered above the line, and then the rest of the crew who are considered below the line. That's what those terms mean. 
Now, Deadline once reported that they were told that the top people on set, meaning above-the-line people, producer, director, lead actors and actresses, are all driven to and from sets and therefore have no concept of what the crew and other actors are dealing with every day. And while that could be true for some while on location out of their home state, that is absolutely untrue when working locally. Known for playing Archie Andrews on the hit CW show Riverdale, K.J. Appa fell asleep at the wheel after working a very long day on set in 2017 and crashed his car. He was driving the 45 minutes that he needed to travel home from the show's set outside of Vancouver, Canada, when he hit a light pole. I would also be lying if I said that there weren't times in my career that I was cracking a Diet Coke for the ride home and cracking the window to get air going to stay awake. K.J. Appa's accident sparked a discussion about on-set conditions and schedules, but according to him, their schedule did not change. On Superstore, we were lucky. Our days were usually under 12 hours, and I know that hotels were offered to people on longer days, but on other productions I have worked on, I have consistently worked 16 hours routinely, and I don't remember ever being offered a hotel or a taxi ride home. And all of this is just the backstory for what was going on on the Rust set, to give you an idea. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea, again, of the safety issues that crews are dealing with all the time on sets everywhere. On October 17th, 2021, a camera operator spent a few hours on, uh, from Rust, uh, spent a few r- hours sleeping in his car because he didn't feel safe driving home. On October 20th, there was a 6 a.m. crew call and it was a long day. One camera operator asked for a hotel room that night and production told them no. The camera department started to feel that producers weren't concerned about their safety. So Lane Looper and other members of the camera crew sent an email at 829 on October 20th to production managers outlining safety concerns. The first issue was the COVID protocols that they felt were lacking. The second was weapon safety. Part of what was written was, during the filming of gunfights on this job, things are often played very fast and loose. So far, there have been two accidental weapons discharges and one accidental special effects explosive that have gone off around the crew between takes. Interesting. Uh And the third concern was the housing for local hires. Uh, They wrote... Myself and others on my crew are Albuquerque locals. Personally, my mileage to and from the set is 52 miles. That's a total of 104 miles driven every day. The trip from my home is set, uh, sorry, the trip from my home to set is roughly an hour. That means I need to tack on an additional two hours of driving every single day to my work day. He then goes on to outline uh, that the IATSE rep, which again is the union, and producers came to a 13-hour deal, meaning if they worked for 13 hours, then they would be qualified to ask for a hotel room or a ride home. Um, But that also means it's technically a 14-hour day because it's 13 hours plus an hour lunch. Yeah. Um, So he went on to write, this means a 14-hour day before courtesy housing is offered, only after a form is filled out requesting it 24 hours in advance. In my 10 years as a camera assistant, I have never worked on a show that cares so little for the safety of its crew. And just a reminder, this email was sent on October 20th which is the night before Helena was killed on set. So Lane Looper basically said that they were going to strike if these things didn't change. The next morning, October 21st, 2021, at 6.15 a.m., most of the camera crew packed up and refused to work, making good on their strike threat. For the first 90 minutes of work that day, there was no camera crew on set at all. Deadline reported that after the mass resignations, the producers allegedly brought in non-union people to replace the departing crew. I do not know how quickly that happened. I could not find any specification about whether that happened immediately or not. Again, this is, I'm piecing together what I could find. The safety meeting that day said there would be gunfire. 
safety meeting happens anytime there's going to be anything dangerous. It's always run by the first assistant director on set. Before lunch, there was a scene with guns. At 1230, they broke for lunch and the guns were put in a safe. After lunch, they wanted to shoot a pickup shot of the gun being shot towards the camera. Alec Baldwin was handed the gun for his rehearsal by first AD David Halls, not the armorer on set, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Halls said cold gun, meaning there was either an empty chamber or dummy rounds in there, and handed it to Alec. Dummy rounds, side note. (laughs) Dummy rounds look exactly like real bullets, but instead of gunpowder inside, they put a single BB so that when you shake it, you can hear it rattle. This is how they test every bullet that is being loaded into a gun before filming a scene on set. If it doesn't rattle, you isolate it and you get it as far away from everywhere as you can. Live ammo is not allowed even on the property of a set. The only thing that's supposed to be on there is dummy rounds. Um, For this specific shot they were shooting, you could see it was close enough that you could see down the barrel of the gun. So you were going to see that there was something in there. So they needed to see the bullet. So that's why they were using a dummy round. Now, I shot two guns on Superstore in two different scenes. So I can speak at least to what my experience was. Number one. The armorer was the only person to handle my gun other than me. Number two, the armorer would show me the gun and that the chamber was empty. All of the chambers were empty. They would show me that, like, again, like, where I don't know gun terms that well, but there's always the thing about that. There could be another bullet in the chamber, like, ready yeah. to go. Like, they have to show you that the whole thing is empty or this was my experience. Then they shook the dummy rounds in front of me and loaded the gun in front of me. So that way you knew exactly what was going in there. In the case of Rust, none of that was done. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed says she wasn't actively allowed on set due to COVID protocols, so that's why David Halls, the first AD, was handing Alec the gun. But I just want to say that COVID protocols are very, very important, but so are gun protocols, and it's shocking to me that that choice was made. I'm very surprised about that. Um, It should also be noted that according to a November 30th affidavit filed by a sheriff's detective, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed stated to the police that while she checked Baldwin's gun... That day, before the unscheduled rehearsal, she, quote, didn't really check it too much, unquote, after lunch, due to it being locked up in the safe at lunch. I appreciate the honesty. I think that that's very important. But when we're dealing with guns, to me, it's like it almost should be annoying if you're working with a gun. Like they should be checking it and checking it and checking it. That's my personal experience with it is that it's like, yeah. So that everybody's comfortable, not just you, but everybody else around, too. It affects everybody, right? She also stated that she loaded five dummy rounds in the gun that morning. She tried to load a sixth bullet, but it got stuck. So throughout the morning, Alec Baldwin was handling the gun with five rounds in it. After lunch, she cleaned a chamber in the gun, pulled another dummy round from the box, shook it, and placed it in the chamber. David Halls told investigators he did not check all the rounds in the gun before it was handed to Alec Baldwin. He says he only saw three rounds in the gun and didn't know if Hannah Reed had spun the chamber or not. His lawyer later said it wasn't his job to make sure the gun was or wasn't loaded. Halls also says he doesn't recall handing the gun to Alec Baldwin, even though multiple sources and witnesses says that they absolutely saw him do it. It's so wild. Um... So in this rehearsal, cinematographer Helena Hutchins told Alex she wanted to see him working the hammer of the gun as he was pulling it out of his coat. She was only 18 to 24 inches away from the muzzle of the gun at the time. That's how close the camera was going to be. She directed Alec where she wanted him to hold the gun. Now, and and he says that he said this in an interview, and I can corroborate this as as an actor. You would have to be very precise. If the camera is that close to you, like your movements have to be 
small and very precise. Like if you're an inch off, it's going to be off camera. Like, so she's showing him exactly where it needs to go. And you would need to be very, very um, calculated with how you're moving. He said that he was supposed to aim it right at her, basically at her armpit. The cameras weren't rolling at the time, so there was no footage of what happened. He pulled the hammer of the gun back as he, as, as far as he could without actually cocking the gun. He let go of it, and the gun went off, which was not supposed to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Turns out there was somehow live ammo in that gun, and, of course, Helena was shot, and the director beside her also was injured. Now, when I had to shoot uh, in a firing range scene on Superstore... There was plexiglass put in front of our camera crew, and we were at a much further distance. So I'm very curious why, especially when they were so close, why they didn't put up plexi. I I, I can't speak to that, and I, I don't know what the answer is there. A couple of things to note. Um, experts say a worn-out or broken gun could be a factor. Hannah's lawyer says it was sabotage, that someone wanted to cause a safety issue on set. I don't know who that would be or why. Hannah's law, uh, the district attorney says it wasn't sabotage. It was incompetence. That was a quote. Um, it also should be noted that on November 2nd, 2021, which is 12 days after Helena's death and 13 days after Lane Looper sent that email, the producers of Rust did release a letter in response to Lane Looper's letter, uh, the letter of resignation. And uh, Alec Baldwin, I believe, also posted that on his Instagram. But it's interesting to me that at that point, oh. after there was a loss of life, that they felt the need to address that. But they did for whatever reason. Sure. Now, I also just want to go on record as saying very quickly, I have read some things online saying, you know, Alec Baldwin should have been better trained in guns and and he should have he should have checked the gun himself, etc. I think that that's unfair. Um, You your job is to the armorer's job is to inspect the gun and their their job is also to work with you. They are the expert. You are to defer to them. That's always been uh, to me my impression of how things work. Um, You should go over it again and again if anyone is uncomfortable. and now, do I think that there should be better protocols and more of a strict kind of list of rules about how things have to go? I do. I absolutely do. I think there should be a very kind of firm list of it's not it shouldn't be a gray area about how it should work. Um, but I don't think it's fair to vilify him in this situation whatsoever. And that's my opinion. You you can have your own. But I, I don't think that it's fair to put this on him because, again, it's, you know, it would almost be inappropriate for us to to un- as actors to undermine the work because then we could get blamed if something goes wrong, right? Like the whole point is, is right. that they are supposed to be, we're supposed to trust them and their expertise. Expertise. Right. On January 12th, 2022, it was announced that Hannah Gutierrez-Reed was suing the weapons provider for Rust, a man named Seth Kenny and his firm PDQ Arm and Prop. She alleges that he supplied a mismarked box of ammunition containing live rounds to the set. Um, a box of ammunitions which surfaced on the set near Santa Fe on the morning of the 21st was labeled dummies, even though the box allegedly contained seven live rounds mixed in with 43 dummies. Now, Seth Kenny says he absolutely did not do this. Um, the lawsuit speculates that the ammunition actually came from Gutierrez Reed's father, Thel Reed, because Thel Reed says that Seth Kenny had asked him to bring live ammunition when they uh, were working on a movie together the year prior so that they could take actors uh, on the film they were working on to a firing range so they could show them how it felt to fire a vintage gun and that somehow those those bullets somehow made it into this other box. But it's unclear to me how, if they were properly being checked, if you were shaking them, it's unclear to me how they got into the gun. If you were checking them, I, I mean, again, it's, it's yeah. again, wild. Um mm. 
The lawsuit also alleges that the prop truck was virtually always left unlocked and accessible to anyone. It notes that sheriff's investigators did not search the prop truck until six days after the shooting. Um, Now, assistant directors are responsible for overall set safety. But with that being said, it's also unclear to me why First AD David Halls was handling the weapon and not the armorer. Um, There was also no visual check of the prop gun that seemed to have been done. So let's talk about... First AD David Halls for a second. He was, of course, the last person to touch the gun before Alec Baldwin. Now, Deadline reported on October 25th, 2021, that David Halls was fired from a previous film because of gun safety lapses and was also not rehired over personal misconduct complaints on a 2019 Bloomhouse TV project. In late 2019, a gun went off on the Arkansas set of Freedom's Path, where he was working as an AD. One of the producers confirmed that David Halls was fired after a crew member incurred a minor injury when a gun was unexpectedly discharged. He also had a personal behavior complaint filed against him in 2019 while working on Bloomhouse's TV anthology series Into the Dark. Um, This was for a lack of respect of the space of fellow crew members and coworkers. He was described as being very aggressive and intimidating on set by a source. Maggie Gall, an IATSE local 44 prop maker and licensed pyrotechnic, pyrotechnician who worked on Into the Dark um, told CNN that he neglected to hold safety meetings and consistently failed to announce the presence of a firearm on set to the crew, as is protocol. Her statement also described an instance where a licensed pyrotechnician had a medical emergency on set and Halls asked her to continue with the shoot. Uh, Halls did not respond to CNN's request for comment, but uh, these allegations were corroborated by Another crew member who did want to remain anonymous because they feared um, retaliation. Of course. There was also allegations of sexual misconduct. Crew members of all genders and dispositions uh, were being made uncomfortable by uh, David Hall's alleged touches on their backs, waists, shoulders, etc. Dave Hall's was also served a subpoena for avoiding interviews with OSHA. In late 2021, following the Rust incident, he said he would do an interview, but I have yet to find out if that has happened or not. The biggest thing in this case, which of course is still ongoing, is who exactly should be held responsible for Helena's death, which is one of the biggest reasons that this has brought the Sarah Jones case back into the forefront of the safety conversation again. So let's get into it. We're going to talk about Sarah Jones. Sarah Jones was born September 22nd, 1986, to Mother Elizabeth and Father Richard. As a child, she swam and did gymnastics. After high school, Sarah attended the College of Charleston with a major in media communications and a minor in film studies. Sarah began her her film career while interning on the set of Army Wives. Bobby Labonge, the director of photography for two seasons of Army Wives, says Sarah had a disarming naivete. You felt reinvigorated around her, he said. You saw the fresh wildness of making movies again, and you saw a sparkle in her that was fun. He also remembers her uh, dragging around lots of gear, always smiling, never complaining. On set, she was known as the ant because of her ability to carry heavy objects that dwarfed her. Sarah was gifted with optimism, a knack for following instructions, and a can-do attitude that endeared her to nearly everyone and that she encountered. In her off time, she traveled. If she had a second off, she left the country. She had to see the world, says one of her best friends, Amanda Etheridge. She was unstoppable, always wanting to learn a new hobby and a new craft. At the time of her passing, she lived in Atlanta, Georgia, where she worked as a camera assistant on many TV and movie projects. Her passion became cinematography, and she was a loyal and respected member of the International Cinematographers Guild, IATSE Local 600. Her parents said she loved working in the camera department, and her dad thinks she liked the challenge of it because it's typically a man's job. 
Sarah worked as a second AC, or a second assistant camera, on the show Vampire Diaries, and star Nina Dobrev once said that Sarah was, quote, someone you always wanted to be around. Safetyforsarah.com says the following about her. From the heights of the mountains she hiked to the depths of the oceans she dove, and never without a camera to record her experiences, the gift of her presence was felt far and wide. To have heard of Sarah was a privilege, to have known Sarah was a blessing. It was to feel an energy that was infectious and kind. Although her physical being is no longer beside us, her smile and her love of life will forever transcend in all the lives of those she touched. Her friends are too many to count. Her parents have said that Fast and the Furious 7 with Paul Walker was her big break as it was a big feature film. But very sadly, Paul Walker did pass away. So that production was shut down. And Sarah then took a job on an indie film called Midnight Rider, which was the job that tragically would be her last. Midnight Rider was a film about Greg Allman and his brother Dwayne, starring William Hurt and Wyatt Russell, written, produced, and directed by Randall Miller. The budget was around $5 million, and Sarah's dad said Sarah was surprised to learn that some of the people working on the film didn't have the level of expertise she was expecting. So something that I didn't realize was the day that the accident happened that killed Sarah was a pre-shoot day, which means production hadn't even started yet. So that's just a very interesting detail, and that's going to come up quite a few times. Um, the only scene that was ever shot for this film was the one they were shooting when Sarah died. Uh, it was scene 14 in the film. It was a drugged-out dream sequence. William Hurt was to be in a hospital bed on a train bridge. Now, Greg Allman's memoir, which the movie is based on, started with the scene on a bridge, but it never mentioned railroad tracks. That was an addition by Randall Miller that he wrote into the screenplay. So on February 20th, 2014, in Jessup, Georgia, the crew headed to the Doctortown Railroad trestle to shoot. It was two stories high and crossed over the... Altamaha River. You can walk along the edge of it, but if you look down, you would see water. So this is a bridge again crossing over yep. the entire kind of river. Hairstylist on the film, Joyce Gilliard, was told they were doing a pre-shoot, so she assumed just a couple of shots. She did not expect to be shooting an entire scene on the railway trestle. Isabeau Giannakopoulos was the on-set photographer, and she was taking photos and filming behind-the-scenes footage that day. So there are quite a few photos and videos, which is rather chilling. Um, she said that they were told that two trains were going to pass, and then that would be it for the day, so they wouldn't have to worry about more trains after that. Joyce Gilliard said she didn't even know that they were going to be on the tracks and that it was director Randall Miller who led everyone out onto the tracks because he wanted a certain shot with the bed on the trestle. So they have like a hospital bed. That William Hurt is going to be laying in. Sure. And William Hurt apparently climbs into the, the bed and says, what do we do if there is a train? How much time do we have to get off the tracks? And they were told, you have 60 seconds. Now, it is unclear who said this or why they thought that. But what we know now is that it was a speculation at best. It was not rooted in any truth. Okay. Isabeau said they had only been on the tracks for five or ten minutes when there was yelling that a train was coming. Now, I have seen a timeline that shows that they were shooting for 28 minutes before the train came, but we'll get to that timeline and some issues with it later, so it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to know exactly. Um, 
Soon, Hilary Schwartz, who was the first AD on the film, yelled, a train was coming. William Hurt was barefoot at the time, trying to get out of the way. The crew was struggling to get the bed frame off of the tracks. There was also a small table that was being used. Uh, People are scrambling. You can hear the train blowing its horn. Sarah Jones, meanwhile, is trying to get the camera equipment off of the track. Now, if they had shot for 28 minutes, that's a fair amount of footage to try and save. But also, cameras are astronomically expensive. But I know what you're thinking. How expensive? I'm going to tell you in a movie cameras are so expensive, you're going to shit a brick. Side note. (laughs) Oh, I like this a lot. The cameras that are used to make feature films and TV shows are either so expensive you can't even buy them, or that if they are available to purchase, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars just getting the body of the camera without any ability to do things like record footage. So the starting point is often in the $50,000 range, um, which may seem more affordable than you thought, but you're going to need to upgrade with at least another 50 grand in accessories and then lenses on top of that if you actually want to use it. So Panavision, for example, who supplies cameras to tons of productions, doesn't sell any of their cameras. Okay? They're only available for rent. The camera body rental rate on the Panavision Millennium DXL2 starts around $1,000 a day with insurance rates of $300,000 in equipment and a million dollars in liability. That camera model was used to capture films like Star Wars Episodes 7, 8, and 9, Midsummer, Extraction, and F9. Another Fast and Furious movie. The RI Alexa LF body only costs $98,200 to start, but it does go up if you want to do things like have capture drives or memory cards. The more compact version, the Alexa Mini LF, starts at a far more reasonable $58,760 U.S. Um, Those two cameras are usually used together in sets, um, and those cameras were used in such films as Judas and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and News of the World. Now, the Sony Venice is a go-to television camera used on shows like Ozark, The Crown, The Boys, Bridgerton. The camera body starts around $49,000. Again, these are U.S. dollars, uh, all of these quotes. Um, so all I'm trying to do is illustrate that the suggestion that Sarah should have, quote, just left the camera on the track and saved herself is flawed. Her job was to protect that camera. And truthfully, I can't even imagine what would have happened if she had survived, but that camera hadn't. And remember, she was told they would have a full minute to get off those tracks, when in reality, we now know they had less than half of that. Oh. There have been implications that Sarah was was responsible for her own death. And documentarian David Rollins, who we will get into more later, once said that, and I quote, Sarah's job was just to do the slates before takes. The slates being, you say the name of the scene and then you clap the the slate. Um, That is so diminishing of what that job is, how hard that job is, how important that job is. It just really rubbed me. Uh, So I thought it would be good to provide some context about what exactly a camera assistant does. And since I've worked in this industry for roughly 24 years, oh my God, dating myself, I do have a fairly large pool of people I know. So I reached out to someone who I know has done Sarah's job and I asked them if they could write a summary of what that job involves. I could speak to this myself, seeing as how I have worked on film and TV sets for as long as I have, but I thought this would be a better opportunity for you to hear the words of someone who has personally done the same job she did. So, this is what the person wrote. The second AC, or assistant camera, 
Position goes beyond simply placing tape at talent's feet and hitting the sticks or the slate at the beginning of a take. Each production is different, and the responsibilities change accordingly. The smaller the budget, the more hats the second AC has to wear. It's not uncommon to be the only second AC for multiple cameras sometimes. The second AC is generally in charge of all of the equipment and support for their particular camera. They handle lenses, cables, camera accessories, keep detailed reports and logs about the shots. This includes everything from the lens used to specifics such as the degree at which the camera was tilted. They must be prepared to change the camera from different modes in a timely and efficient manner. They can quickly switch a camera from studio mode to handheld or even steady cam. Second ACs also interact with other departments, sound, script supervisors, crane operators, etc. So the ability to communicate and work together is important. The A camera is considered the key camera. As a second AC for this camera, they have even more responsibilities. They arrange the order of expendables and equipment rentals. They help the key first with hiring day players and a bevy of other secretarial-type situations. Ultimately, they make sure the operator and first can focus on doing their job well. So, with all of this in mind, her job was not just to slap the six at the start of the take. Thank you very much. But again, we'll get we'll get into that gentleman a little bit later. So we're going to go back to February 20th, 2014. The crew is racing to get off the tracks. A train is approaching. Isabeau says Rando Miller fell. She dropped her camera, helped him up. Then she says she was hit by something and had a brief blackout. Joyce Gilliard says she realized she could not get off the trestle fast enough. So she ran to the side and held on to the iron girder and prayed not to get hit by the train. But the pressure from the wind of the train was so strong, it was almost impossible for her to hold on. The train smashed into the hospital bed that the crew was not able to get off the tracks in time. Then the train hit Joyce's left arm, snapping a bone. It was a compound fracture in the end, and her scars are excessive. Um... Sarah was the first person that Joyce saw after this. She says Sarah was laying on the side of the tracks, dead, but you wouldn't know it was her. Seven people in total were injured on top of Sarah's death. Joyce Gilliard needed a plate and ten screws just to reconstruct her arm. And I will just say as a quick aside that a hairstylist needs both of their arms and hands in order to do their job. So that was her livelihood right there. And uh, not only did she go through the obvious trauma of seeing Sarah, unfortunately, um, I just also want to take a moment to acknowledge that because that's a huge, that's a huge thing when that's like oh, affecting yeah. your ability to to do your job and make a livelihood. Now, there is a camera that was mounted on the front of the train, and you can watch that footage. And I will say that you can see Sarah has gotten off the tracks. However, the point of impact was determined because. Human remains were found on the fuel containers that were on the side of the train. So it appears to me and many people involved in the case that when the train hit the hospital bed, it flipped up into Sarah and slammed her into the side of the train. I know what you're thinking. Why is this detail important? Because when we get into who was responsible for her death, this becomes a massive point of debate. But what isn't up for debate is that Sarah Jones lost her life that day at the age of 27, and it never should have happened. So let's get into how it did. Number one, there were no permits. Let that hang out there for just a second. I can hear everybody yelling. Uh, For context... Yeah, I I, uh, I made a short film. It's called Start Stop. Uh, and uh, 
I was shooting in my own home. The entire thing I shot in my own home. I got a permit because one of the scenes, I was shooting my front door. And because I was outside, even though it was in my own front lawn, yeah. I, needed to have, I needed a permit. That's the, that's the rules. But they didn't get a permit for a train trestle, a live train track. We're going to talk about that a lot more, though. Um, who's in charge of permits? Well, that would be the locations department. The locations manager on Midnight Rider was a man named Charlie Baxter. The locations manager books all the locations using the production, gets permission, gets the permits, all of that. Randall Miller got an initial email through Charlie Baxter saying it was the company policy of train company CSX not to let people film on their tracks. On the morning of the shoot, a rep for CSX once again failed to grant permission to shoot on their tracks. The email read in part, CSX will not be able to support your request. Charlie Baxter was scheduled to be on set at the time of the accident, but says he refused to be because of that email. He said he would not show up if they didn't have permission. He also says that Randall Miller told him he was going to shoot on the tracks whether they had permission from CSX or not. Number two. There was no medic on set, and there was no safety meeting. Now this, this just feels, again, egregious. Who does this fall to? Well, that would be the first AD, Hillary Schwartz. In her deposition, Hillary Schwartz was asked, as a first director, what are your responsibilities? She responded, I am one of the people who has safety responsibilities on set. She should have had a medic on set. She should have had safety bulletins made stating that they were going to be shooting on live train tracks, and there should have been a safety meeting held outlining to everyone what to do in case of emergency. None of those things were done. William Hurt has said that he asked Hillary in before they started, you know, is this safe? And she said yes. And because the rest of the crew kind of seemed okay with it, and they all work together regularly, he said he thought she must be trustworthy. But again, this is a pre-shoot. They, they, nobody's met, you know, it's a local shoot. It was a lot of local ho- hires, so they may have known each other, but... You know, he didn't know, so he was like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll trust these people. Um, again, more on all of this as we go. Number three, director Randall Miller. Randall once bragged about stealing shots when talking on a panel about his film CBGB. He said, you're not allowed to shoot in New York subways. I don't know if you know that, but you're not allowed to. Obviously, he did that anyway. And on the DVD extras of that film, he also joked about pulling off a questionable scene for the same movie, uh, shot in Savannah, Georgia, he was laughing about it this time. Uh, the scene in question was a toddler running around a pasture with live cows. And he said, oh. I don't think it's dangerous at all to have a little kid run with cows. No, no. Really? Because, mm. um, <laughs> as a mother. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. Um, d- even... As someone who does not live on a farm or go near cows in any respect, um, no. <laughs> like, those, it's, it, I don't, this is not like an, I'm not anti cow. I actually would like to pet one one day because they look like I, I want to pet their little, their little snoots. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. I just do. Um, and some of them, their eyelashes. Insane. Um, My thing is, oh, God, and a baby cow. I can't. The point is, I don't have anything against cows. They are such large animals where, like, even if, like, a hoof, like, I'm not a doctor, (laughs) but I feel like 
if a if a cow accidentally stepped on a toddler's foot, the it would break like every bone in that foot. Oh God, yeah. So oh, I God, just yeah. and again, not anti-cow. I have nothing against them. I'm not saying they're vicious animals at all. I'm saying they aren't probably used to children running around. A child isn't probably, who knows if that kid is used to being around cows or not. But just well, to wonder, yeah. it just it just felt like, why? Well, and, and the, the, uh, the bottom line is, is the only reason why you're laughing about it now is because it went, it went well, right? Like, it's like right. it could have gone horribly. But the bottom line again is, yeah, no, it's not. It's not the cow's fault. There, there's got to be protocols for a reason, which are to protect, obviously, um, crew. And in this case, obviously, that actor who was a toddler, who also I want to remind you was not old enough to even consent to be in that film. So that's a whole other conversation. Um, right. It also looked like they showed a clip of that, and it looked like it was very like it looked like dusk or like almost evening, like it was getting dark. Which again, I just. Lot of bogeys, lot of room for disaster. And what if there's like a noise or something that startles them, and they run, and this kid gets, you know, they were lucky. But here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. Again, like they shot in the New York subways, they didn't get caught. They sh they shot with this kid, they were lucky. There was another instance where they threw a p piano down the stairs. He said, "This is a real house. I don't think they fully knew we were going to throw a piano down their staircase." He laughs, and it's like, well, you kept doing this stuff. And then we'll get into whether or not we think he's culpable. That's part of the whole conversation. Sure. But again, to me, it just feels like if you're consistently pushing it, eventually at some point, that's just a spiritual comment. It's going to catch up with you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Um, but anyway, so he and his producing partner, his wife, Jody Savin, uh, were considered by some to be guerrilla filmmakers. Um, the head of the Savannah Film Commission said of the film CBGB, we had more complaints about the activities of that film than, when, than we did in any previous entire year. They pulled down a stop sign, painted over another stop sign. Cars were parked in front of fire hydrants or in handicap spots. Randall would say, we're trying to make a movie here, as though that outweighed people's safety. He went on to say that he believes um, that he was shocked no one got hurt making that movie. So Ed Garland, attorney for Randall Miller, says of the Sarah Jones incident that Randy Miller had no perception of danger and was relying on his team that had never failed him, that was in, that he was in a safe space. He'd been told there was just two trains and those had gone. But the production actually had no idea when a train might be coming. CSX told investigators it was their busiest track and probably had 27 to 30 trains that passed through on that track every day. At that time, there's no freight train schedule that can be relied on. A man named Art Miller, who is a railroad safety expert, says it's a day-to-day -day thing and the variance can be great. There's no such thing as a freight train schedule that exists like an airline schedule may. So how would Art Miller suggest a production safely film on train tracks? He says you'd need a railroad employee, the agreement of the railroad, and special crew training for the entire crew. And then I love this quote. He said, the laws of gravity and inertia are not repealed for film crews. <laughs> exactly. Um, he also said there's strict guidelines for filming near tracks, but it should be noted when I say guidelines, I am referring to a set of guidelines that were created by the industry-wide Labor Management Safety Committee. 
These rules are presented in a series of safety bulletins created to try and promote safety on sets. These were created as industry standards and are not laws. In fact, it says on the bottom of every page in the document, and I quote, safety bulletins are recommended guidelines only, consult all applicable rules and regulations. So, safety bulletin number 28 is entitled Guidelines for Safety Around Railroads and Railroad Equipment. I read it. It's pretty general. The closest thing that feels relevant to this case is, quote, do not sit, stand, step, walk, or place coins or other objects on the rails, switches, guardrails, or other parts of the track structure. So the work that they were doing was in direct violation of this industry guideline, which to me makes it even more imperative that a railroad railroad representative should have been present. Um, again, I don't know who came up with the idea that after two, uh, oh my God, I'm getting marble mouth. After two trains passed, no more trains would come, but it is a complete falsehood and it's unclear where that idea even came from. Uh, and since they were standing on the tracks, they placed a bed on the tracks, they had a table on the tracks. The level of, of danger is just so high. Um, to me, this doesn't feel like the time to steal a shot. And it does seem like that's what they were trying to do because they didn't have permission to be there. And that's the definition of stealing a shot. If I was the director, side note. <laughs> if yep. I was the director, I would have had a rehearsal with the entire crew creating a well-oiled dance, getting all of them and all of the gear off the tracks in an efficient, timely manner. Basically, I want to practice this thing like it's a fire drill that you do when you're a kid so that everybody knows what to do just in case of an emergency. Now, I also want to note, I would only have shot there if I had a permit and a representative from the railroad present. Even with of those course. two things, I'm telling you, this is what I would do. It doesn't matter to me if I, if, well, two trains will pass. Don't care. We're going to make a plan so that if shit hits the fan, we have a, we have a backup, right? Yes. You have props as large as a bed and a table on the tracks. They were under the impression they had a minute to get off the tracks. So this is what I'm saying. Rehearse it. Time it out. Make sure everyone has their own path, their own route to safety. Do it like theater. But I digress. I mean, great point. I You said like a children fire drill. My head instantly went to like changing the tires on a car in NASCAR. Yes. Get in there. Everybody does their on their thing, and then everybody's out. Yes. (laughs) You're you're welcome for that. Thank you very much. But that's exactly what I'm talking about, that everyone has a job, everybody, and it's rehearsed. They know what they're doing. They know if something goes wrong, you go here, you go here, you pick up this, we pick up this. And that's not to say it would even go off without a hitch. But to me, taking it seriously and rehearsing it all out with the entire crew so you have a plan, that to me, and they may have looked at me like I was, you know, Cuckoo bananas, but that would have been my choice. Well, they'd have in to the look months- through me. <laughs> well, thank you for it. Thank you for yep. it. Yep. In the months that followed the incident, authorities in Georgia indicted Randall Miller, his wife Jody Savin, who was, of course, a producer on the film, additional producer Jay Sedrish, and first AD Hillary Schwartz for all, all for invol- involuntary manslaughter and criminal trespass. They all pled not guilty. But if convicted, they all stood to serve as much as 10 years in prison. At the time, no film director had ever done jail time for an onset death. Wayne County criminal investigator Joe Gardner asked Jay Sedrish, did you have permission to shoot on the tracks? And the answer he gave was, well, it's complicated. And oh boy, was it. But more on that in a bit. It should be noted that Randall Miller wanted to finish making the movie, but Greg Allman filed suit to stop the production from going forward, and it worked. 
Good for you, Greg Ullman. He was like, it's just, it's over. This is a tragedy. It's over. Yes! This compelled Randall Miller to testify on video. When the prosecution attorney asked Randall, quote, Did you even employ anyone to go down the railroad track maybe three or four miles to warn people when the train was coming? Randall replied, Unfortunately, that's not my job. Then the attorney asked, Do you know where anybody was down that track before the train accident occurred? Randall responded, Again, it's not my job. The attorney continued, You didn't ask CSX how many trains were coming down that trestle, did you? And Randall said, Again, that's not my job. Now, what the fuck is your job, man? Well, Sorry? No? Yep, yep, yep. Listen. Well, <laughs> again, we're, there's lots of lots of gray area and semantics we're going to get into about that mm-hmm. for sure. Now, the first AD is traditionally responsible for safety on set, but a director is still responsible for making sure they are not putting anyone in danger. And to me, a train track where they have just watched in person two trains go by is a big deal. Randall Miller said on the stand, I heard that if a train were to come, that at the very least we would have 60 seconds. The attorney replied, and you actually believed that you could get a metal bed off the track and the people off the track in 60 seconds. Randall replied, well, I didn't. Yes. Again, if he believed that to be true, they could have taped out the dimensions of the trestle and rehearsed this. The team could have taken measurements and they could have rehearsed it. But again, I digress. The attorney continued and asked Miller, did you see a written permission from CSX to put those people on the tracks? That's a simple question. Randall Miller said, I do not do the permits. The attorney clarified, you didn't see any permits before you asked those people to get on the train track. Randall continued, I did not see the permits, no. Then he goes on to say, I was in the middle of the track and I almost died. And he starts to like angry cry at this point. (sighs) Yeah. Joe Gardner says that his investigation showed that Randall Miller made the decision to tell everyone to move onto the tracks to shoot. The investigation came to a head on March 9th, 2015, when several of the supervising crew were brought to trial for criminal trespass and involuntary manslaughter. But as the trial was about to start, there was an unexpected turn of events. The prosecutor came to Sarah Jones' parents, asking if they agreed to it. There was a plea deal on the table, and they accepted. Randall Miller was sentenced to a 10-year term, two years in the county jail, a file of $20,000, and the ruling that Randall Miller cannot serve as a director, producer, first AD, or supervisor on any film where he has the responsibility for people's safety for 10 years. This made Randall Miller the first director in history to ever go to jail for an accident on set. Hillary Schwartz and unit production manager Jay Sedrish both got 10 years probation. The charges against Jody Savin were dismissed. I have a lot of feelings. Mm-hmm. A lot of feelings. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't know about you, dear listeners, but I just never get enough of Lauren giving us inside Hollywood perspectives. She is a gift to our lives, and I hope Bless. we all uh, celebrate her for that. Look, this fake Coke may or may not cause me caffeine issues later. <laughs> but right now, it's causing me bathroom issues. <laughs> and by that, I mean I have to pee. I didn't want you to think it gave me the runs. I don't know why I felt the need to that. I'm a nightmare. So we're going to take a quick break, grab a drink, 
maybe some fries, and we will be right back with more on Sarah Jones on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Lauren was pointing out the terrifying lack of safety in so many Hollywood productions. I'm still horrified that they had no permits or safety meeting for filming on train tracks. I can't really think about it. So Lauren, what's going to horrify me next? Oh, buckle in. Just (laughs) buckle in. A man named David Rawlins made a documentary about this case called Trial of Midnight Rider, Railroaded in the Deep South. It was basically saying that Randall Miller was framed and there was a larger cover-up at play. It should be noted that David Rawlins is a personal friend of Randall Miller's, so the documentary is definitely biased. However, I will say he did manage to uncover some very interesting information, which I have fact-checked, which I will tell you about now. The train trestle was located on the property of Rainier Performance Fibers, a pulp mill. Uh, So permission to shoot there would not only have to come from CSX, who owned the railroad tracks, but it also had to come from Rainier, who would have had to have grant the production access to um, who would have had to grant the production access to the site as the property was gated. So Rainier and CSX worked together closely as Rainier loads and unloads wood pulp daily onto the freight trains that use those tracks. And they would have had to, again, only been able to get to those tracks, which are deep into the property, by having someone meet them and let them onto that property. On his website, David Rollins says Rainier is the, quote, world's largest pulp mill. From what I can tell, the world's largest pulp mill is the Jinhai Pulp Mill, also known as the Hainan Jinhai Pulp and Paper Mill. Um, I couldn't find a date on that info anywhere, but for context, Rainier employs 800 people, while Jinhai employs 1,600 I can't find anywhere that Rainier says they're the world's biggest, which does feel like something a company would brag about. But again, I digress. Mm-hmm. 
A woman named Tina Kicklighter was the communications manager of Rainier at the time. She handled community relations, scheduling filming, community requests, etc. On February 6, 2014, Tina emailed the Midnight Rider production crew and said they could do a walkthrough of the train trestle on February 7th. Train trestle location scout is the subject of the email. On February 7th, five crew members went to scout the bridge, but Randall Miller wasn't there. He was in Los Angeles. In the documentary, David Rollins says every location that's used in a movie is scouted and the director is usually there for every one. And this is true. But Randall Miller chose not to be at this one. And for the record, as far as I know, this is unheard of. Um, I don't know that this helps paint Miller in a sympathetic or professional light. Um... Again, I'm not saying that this absolutely never happens, but from my experience and the directors I've worked with, they've never missed a scout. But anyway, mm. unless it's, you know, some for a huge reason, maybe he had a huge reason that I don't know. But anyway, again, I just present the facts as I see them. The crew in attendance was Missy Stewart, the production designer, Hillary Schwartz, the first AD, Charlie Baxter, the location manager, Jay Sedrish the production manager, and Mike Ozier, the DP or director of photography. Semantic side note. <laughs> What's the difference between a director of photography and a cinematographer? Well, the internet says, quote, the work of a director of photography also focuses on cinematography. The name implies a focus on the general look of a movie rather than creative visual elements that the title of cinematographer might imply. I think it's just a personal preference. I think they're kind of interchangeable and people may come for me about that. But I, I, that's, I mean, I've heard cinematographer mostly used in film and DP mostly used in TV. But again, I don't think there's any fast and hard rules about that. Um, that's just my two cents on that. So on February 7th, Tina Kicklighter and the five crew members met with Rainier security head Kat Parkinson to let them onto the property. Charlie asked if it was a live track. Tina said she didn't know. Mike oh. Ozier said the bridge goes really far, 50 to 100 yards. From what I could find, it was 117 feet long, which would be 39 yards. Hmm. Osier says they were out there for a long time and no trains came, that it was sleepy, and he didn't even know if there were trains using the track those days. I don't think I need to say this, but it's obviously inappropriate for him to speculate on this. Yes! I mean, I understand that he was trying to say, like, well, it seemed like it was abandoned at the time, but it's like, right, but you all should, like, it's a train track. Like, to me, it's like, is this, I feel like... You never know. Like, to me, there's like, that's a, that's something that requires like, listen, everybody, even if it's abandoned, we're going to go through all of these safety protocols because that's what we do just in case. Like, that's to me how it has to be handled. But here we are. Tina said they could walk out onto the trestle to take photos. So Mike and Hillary did. Mike actually even laid down on the train track to take pictures for Randall Tina later said in her sworn OSHA statement, and there is video uh, of, of this whole interchange, that she did not walk on the railroad bridge and that she did not know if Mike or any crew went onto the trestle. But when she was confronted about this, she was shown a photo of all of them standing on the bridge. And when she was confronted at that moment in a deposition, she says, well, I was in shock when I made that statement to OSHA. It was two weeks after the accident. So... <laughs> So we did catch her in a lie there. 
Um, in the deposition, once called on it in the deposition, she admits that on the day of the scout, they did walk on the trestle. Randall Miller says that he feels Rainier was trying to push the blame away from themselves and onto him. More on that again as we go. Jay Sedrish says that he was told Tina was the liaison from CSX, not Rainier. Tina reiterates she did not know if it was a live track. She says she wasn't thinking that day and followed them along out onto the bridge when they went to take pictures. She didn't tell them that they needed permission before walking out there, but I guess she may also not have known that because she also didn't know if it was a live track. It all feels very muddy to me, again, and trying to get real answers about who knows what and where. Yeah, I'm not caring for it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot, it just, yeah, well, again, buckle in. Scott Hyde is Rainier's senior global logistics manager, and he is the main contact with CSX. Neil Hudson from CSX and Scott Hyde have both worked for their respective companies for over 18 years, uh, and they have worked together on a daily basis at that time, um, for most of that time, and it should be noted, they are Facebook friends. On Friday, February 7th at 3.15 p.m., Neil at CSX messaged Scott saying, and I quote, Scott, the approval will actually come from Southern Region VP Mike Pendergrass. If you have a contact name and number of the film company, that will help. Chris Worth will help me get this to the right people, but he will need to approach them with that direct contact info. Also, if you haven't happen to have the milepost or approximate of that trestle, please share. Thanks. Now, this doesn't feel super abnormal to me. If they've been working together in different companies for 18 years, why sure. wouldn't he try and help his friend out, even if they're just acquaintances? Um, but why do they want to help this movie get made is, is a question that I have. Like, what do they have at stake? On And I don't have an answer for that right now, but we'll get to it. On February 13th, Tina Kicklighter wrote to Charlie Baxter in an email saying, The gentleman I spoke with is going to try and push this up the chain. Neil said he would make some calls and even try to go through a back door to get someone to call you today. He realizes the great publicity value of working this out. We're getting there, Tina. So publicity value. Interesting. Why would Neil at CSX, the train company, be interested in publicity? I can't think of a reason. But could it have been that Rayoneer was interested in publicity? Because Rayoneer was in some major hot water over huge environmental issues? And perhaps... <sighs> Having this movie filming on their property could get them some fun, good press. And since Neil was seemingly at least friendly with Scott, it's feasible that he just wanted to help them out. Who knows? That sure. is one of the things that David Rollins does speculate and allege in the documentary. On February 14th, Tina writes to Charlie again. Spoke with CSX again. Just got a call back. You will be receiving a call today from Peggy Smith with CSX. They're going to do their best to make this happen by February 20th. Apparently, the process takes multiple weeks. They will need to coordinate. However, they're being very cooperative. Now, my question here is, I don't understand why they needed to rush it. Because it wasn't like... They were 35 days into their 36-day production schedule. And like, shoot, we got to get this scene. Right. They hadn't even started yet. So to me, if they had to push the scene so they could get the paperwork in order, that shouldn't have been a problem. For context, productions, move schedules, shift scenes, that happens all the time. I mean, your your schedule is constantly changing. So that to me, I was... I. I 
I'm just very curious about why there was, why it had to be that day. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I sure. don't have an answer there at all. Um, Scott Hyde said he didn't remember talking to Neil at CSX about this, but there's obviously tons of emails that say otherwise. Scott also said that this this specific track is a major artery for CSX, so why didn't they offer another option? <laughs> I also just like that at this moment, we've, we've established that Scott and Neil are friendly, but at, at this time, Scott is happy to throw him under the bus. Like, <laughs> why didn't, well, well, if he knows it's an active track, why didn't he offer us something else? It's like, wow, glad, I bet you Neil's really glad he helped you out there, Scott. <laughs> um, Charlie says that between February 7th and the day of the accident, February 20th, they did not look for any alternative bridge locations. But Mike Osier had said they wanted something very specific, so it makes sense to me that they just were sold on this location, they got it in their heads, that nothing else would do. But again, the question I come back to is, why did it have to be that day? I don't know. Carla Grolo is the ex-corporate communications manager for CSX. She sent an email February 20th at 10.47 a.m. to Charlie Baxter and Tina Kicklighter that said, I am sorry for the delay in getting back with you. Unfortunately, CSX will not be able to support your request. As discussed, I do suggest that you reach out to the short-line railroads as they routinely support filming support. Thanks so much. Sounds like a great production. Best of luck. At 10.48.30, so a minute and a half later, another email came through from Carla to Charlie Baxter and Tina Kicklighter saying, Grolo Carla would like to recall the message CSX. That was the last word from CSX on the matter. So David Rollins in the documentary is saying that this recall email means that Carla Grolo was recalling the first email saying, you don't have permission to do this. And he's he's arguing that that means she was saying that they weren't being denied, which makes it unclear if, if the permission had been denied or hadn't been denied, which to me is like, I mean... I feel like, again, when we're talking about train tracks, it feels like we can't be, if there was any gray area, someone should have written her back and said, hey, is this on or is this off? Um, Charlie says he doesn't remember the recall message at all, which means, according to him, he was under the impression that they were denied permission. Nothing unclear to him, according to him. Tina says she deleted the recall message and she deleted the original message because that's what you do when you get a recall. You delete the email that it's saying you're supposed to delete. I've never heard of this. I guess this is maybe what business people do, but I, I don't know. You don't like to delete an email. I never delete an email. Never yeah. could, never would. But also I'm like, I just think it's a little bit of a stretch that it's like, well, it was gray area. It was, you know, if she said, if she recalled that email, that means she was recalling the denial, which means you did technically, and it's like, well, hold on a second. That's, there should not be gray area in the world of train safety. Thank you very much. Tina said Charlie asked her if he had, sorry, Tina said Charlie asked her if she had responded to the CSX email. Charlie says he asked if she had received the email and she said yes. But it's unclear if Charlie was referring to the original email or the recall email. He could have been talking about the original email since he states that he doesn't remember the recall email. I, I mean, again, the semantics and the he said, she said about 
which email did you get it? Again, to me, it doesn't prove anything that it's like, well, Charlie asked her if she got the email. It's like, right, but he could have been referring to the first one. Like, to me, that that doesn't prove anything. Again, right. if we're looking at court of law situation, in my opinion. Randall Miller says he thinks it's really strange that Charlie didn't pull him aside and say, we can't do this. He also thinks it's weird that Tina Kicklighter didn't do anything. But it's unclear when Tina deleted the CSX email. Was it deleted before the accident? That could suggest she felt it meant they were allowed to film. Again, a stretch for me. Sure. Was it deleted after the accident? Which could have been proof that she was trying to hide it or cover it up. Again, I don't know. Jay Sedrish says that Charlie Baxter said, They're not saying you can't do it. They're just not going to help you do it. Hillary Schwartz says that Charlie said, Did you get my email? And she said yes. There was a text message shown in the documentary, Hillary allegedly saying, now again, I'm saying allegedly because you could fake a text conversation. I don't know why. I mean, I guess we're assuming that he's telling the truth. Regardless, sure. this is what he's saying is real. Um, are you at the trestle? Any sign of the bad railroad people? Charlie responding, no, I'm not. And according to Tina, no RR peeps, and she doesn't expect any. Make haste. Now, this is all, again, trying to build a story that Charlie Baxter should have been held more liable. But to me, again, if we're talking about in a court of law where you got to prove reasonable doubt, nothing about that text says he was comfortable with the situation. He's saying, if you guys are going to go ahead and do this, I don't want to make a, I don't want to be a part of it. That's what he's always said his position was. So that text saying, apparently there's nobody coming. I'm not coming either. Get it done quick, you know. There's to me, it's like it all depends. There's no emotion with texts. We know this, right? So it could have been that, or it could have been like, yeah, no, no railroad people are coming. Make haste, right? Like it's like we don't, we don't know. We don't know what the answer is. But to me, it's not black and white. Is my point. Uh, and to me, it is clear, Disney. If you could get her some sort of cartoon witch to play, she's ready. I'm ready for a villain role. Thank yes. you. Yes, and like. The boss villain that you find out in the end was really the right all along. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, that. like, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, So, John B. Johnson, the Wayne County prosecutor, is asked if he determined if Randall knew when they went to the trestle that CSX had denied them permission to shoot on the track. He says, quote, Based on the statements of Charlie Baxter and Hillary Schwartz, the answer to that would be yes. However... Hillary and Charlie both say they did not discuss the CSX email with Randall. In Hillary's deposition, she says she didn't talk to Randall or Jody Savin about it. But again, it is very hard to determine which email they're talking about. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't forwarded. Because we're going to find out in a second that, of course, the email was forwarded. So mm -hmm. it's all of these, it's these these games of linguistics, right? Where it's like, well, did you talk to him? And it's like, well, no. You know what I'm saying? Again, sure. um, Charlie Baxter says in his deposition, he was asked, do you know that Randall received your email? And he said no. But the point is, is that he sent it. He forwarded it saying the answer is no. We're not allowed. We don't have permission. Sure. Randall Miller says he was in a rehearsal with William Hurt in Medin Studios at the time the CSX email, the one denying them permission to shoot on the trestle, would have been forwarded to him, and he says he didn't see it. But I got a call, look at the call sheet for that day. 
as I'm wont to do. It lists a rehearsal at the production office that day starting at 10 a.m. with Randall Miller, Wyatt Russell, and Tyson Ritter in attendance. There's no mention of William Hurt. So then I thought, oh, okay, did William Hurt just not want his name on the call sheet? Um, did he, was he using a fake name or something? Uh, well, if you look down, his name was listed down below as being in the first van that would be shuttling from Medin Studios to the trestle to shoot. So his name is definitely used on the call sheet, but it was not listed as being in attendance at that rehearsal. Is it possible he could have been at the rehearsal and simply not listed? Of course. Do productions typically do that? Absolutely not. As an actor, I'm not going anywhere unless it's on my call sheet. And if I get told to be somewhere and it's not on the call sheet, they're obviously going to make an adjustment and reissue a new call sheet. But again, I'm only speaking to my personal experience. Maybe they did things differently. I don't know. The crew call at Medin Studios was listed as 1.30 p.m. that day, and they would be shuttled to the Trestle location, which was listed as being approximately one hour and 15 minutes from Medin Studios. Shooting was to begin at 4 p.m. at the Trestle. Randall Miller is only listed again as being in the rehearsal with Wyatt and Tyson at 10 a.m. that day. Now, is it possible it could have been a three-hour rehearsal? Absolutely. But if it was, I'm certain they would have taken a break at some point. And we know that the email came through from Carla Grolo at 10.47 a.m. So it seems like there would have been time before they were set to leave at 1.30 for Miller to check his phone. But Randall Miller says it's impossible to expect him to read his emails. There were 65 locations and lots of emails. He also expects us to believe that he didn't check his email on his phone one time in the one hour and 15 minute long drive to the trestle. I'm assuming they have cell service. Most places right. in the built-up world in 2014 had cell service. Um, and also, by the way, there was there's the signal booster things you can get. Every film and TV set I've ever worked on has those in case you're working somewhere and production needs to have the ability to be on Wi-Fi or, be, or have a, a boosted cell signal so that they can contact people and whatnot part of the job. I just don't know that I believe that when he was being driven in a van for an hour and 15 minutes, he just didn't check his emails. Um, and by the way, as the director, I, you check your emails. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, I just don't. I, to me, I would have more respect if he just said, you know what? I think I missed it. That I can buy. You got a lot of emails. Is it possible you missed it? Sure. But just suggesting like, because he said, and I quote, it's impossible to expect me to read my emails. And I don't think that that's true. Um, David Rollins presents a timeline saying a crew of 35 people arrived at the trestle at 2 p.m. But if they left exactly when they were supposed to at 1.30, as listed on the call sheet, they would not have arrived until 2.45 p.m. He says at 2.30, they set up beside the tracks and waited for the two trains to pass. Then at 4 p.m., after the second train went, the crew moved onto the bridge. They shot from 4 to 4.28 Six different shots made with two camera teams and a crew of 25. Again, he previously stated there was a crew of 35, so I'm not sure if that meant 25 were on the bridge and 10 were off to the side. Um, again, but I also don't know about the validity of this timeline. Uh, at 428, with two shots left to complete the scene, a train approaches. At 429, as the crew scrambled off the bridge, train Q12519 runs into them, killing Sarah Jones. Again, I don't know what his sourcing is. I, I I find some things are off. Again, is it possible that some of them left early? 
um, and defied what the call sheet said to make the, the trip. Yeah, but again, all of it is just, there's just so much um, conflicting information again, and he said, she said, that it's really hard to wade through what exactly is the truth. And I could not determine any other kind of timeline uh, with any sort of, um, I couldn't commit to anything being fact about the timeline is the point. I couldn't, it was all kind of contradicting each other. Tina Kicklighter's boss, Jack Perrette, assigned her to be present at the shoot, but she said she didn't have a written agreement saying she would be there. However, there was. <laughs> In the deposition, uh, when she is told this, she says, and I quote, I don't read our legal documents. Not really helping yourself, Tina. Uh. Now, were there other reasons Tina wanted this shoot to happen? Well, we know that Tina apparently sent two emails about her boyfriend Justin becoming an extra in the film. Oh, boy. In Justin's deposition, he admits he was convicted of battery for an altercation with Tina. He says he describes two incidents. I, I couldn't figure out which one he was charged for or it was, again, very confusing. But he says at one point, Tina was in the passenger seat of the car. He was in the driver's seat and she was, quote, throwing licks at him. So he grabbed her by the arms and pushed her off of him. On another occasion, he knocked her into a table in her kitchen, resulting in her having a detached retina that required surgery and for her to miss work. Oh. Um, when he is asked about this, he gets defensive, saying, yes, she needed that surgery, but that the t detached retina was from her accidentally hitting herself in the eye in the midst of the altercation. I don't know why this was chosen to be included in the documentary. Um, it felt like perhaps it was trying to make Tina look like she was trying to get him work as an extra on the movie because she wanted to please him or she was scared of him. That's a speculation on my part. It's sure. really unclear. It was kind of odd to me. I was like, why is this being presented? Because the bottom line, even though we know that she has lied about a few things, I just want to make clear, trying to use a survivor of domestic violence's trauma as proof of her doing something wrong is really gross. And I don't yes. think is true or, or provable or also relevant. I, I don't, I just don't think it's relevant. It's not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Again, it was odd. I was like, I don't know. And and again, we'll keep going because there's there's a few of those where I was like, what is this point that's trying to be made? Which was unfortunate because there was information that he had in there that I was like, wow, like he's really uncovered some stuff. But it was kind of, again, because it was very one-sided, it felt again, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, now follow me on this one, because it's about to get real confusing for a second. Hillary Schwartz, first AD, says that Charlie Baxter, locations manager, said that Tina Kicklighter said that this wasn't a no from CSX. Hillary said that Charlie said that Tina said that this wasn't a no from CSX. It was just that they were going to look the other way. Charlie says... He spoke to Tina and said, if you've changed your mind and you don't want the movie to come film, just let me know. And she said she was fine with it. He said, okay, well, I'm not, and I'm not going to be participating in this. Tina says it was multiple calls, and she remembers him saying he wouldn't be coming, and that Stephanie would be her contact. Randall Miller thinks Charlie's story about not being comfortable with 
filming without the permit, was concocted after the fact, stating, and I quote, If he thought it was a problem, why would he send a 23-year-old in his place? It doesn't make sense. Well, that's because it was his assistant, Randall. And that's who you send in your place. If you're not available, you send your assistant. That makes sense. Also, why would a director send five, five crew people to scout a very dangerous location? That doesn't make sense. But I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like, how offensive. I just have to say for a second. You don't have to, 23, you had to point out her age as though she's incompetent because she's 23? How dare you? That has absolutely no bearing on whether or not she was able to do her job. I can't speculate on how good or bad she was at her job because I have not been provided with any of that information. And nor were you because it was a pre-shoot. It was before you'd even started. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he also implies that Charlie Baxter was behind and so that he needed to stay back and do work. Again, I'm like... It's your word against his, and I, I just don't know that any of that matters at the end of the day. But anyway, uh, again, in a court of law, in a court of law. So there is a lot of talk about the first AD is in charge of safety. And that is true, of course. But Randall Miller says he's generally focused on the actors because, quote, it's hard enough to get the actors to do whatever the scene tells you to do, and the stuff in the background is the AD. He goes on to say, I'm talking to William Hurt. It's the first day I'm working with him. He's not the easiest actor to deal with. He's a complicated actor, but he's an Academy Award winner. I'm not really thinking about this other stuff. So what I'm hearing there is that he's saying, I just want to focus on the actor, and that means he's not multitasking. And multitasking is literally what a director does. A director has to sit there and have every single department on that set come to them with questions, clarifications, your entire job is not to is not just the actors. You've got to worry about lighting. You've got to worry about sound. You've got to worry about all of the above. So, again, let's just pause here. Um, but this did make me ask the question, is William Hurt known to be difficult? Which brings me to a William Hurt side note. Hey! In her 2010 memoir, I'll Scream Later, Oscar-winning actress Marley Matlin describes the two years she spent in a relationship with William Hurt. In vivid, disturbing detail, outlining a pattern of physical and emotional abuse. Oh, boy, I was hoping this was going the other way. Here are some lowlights, and I'm giving a trigger warning for sexual assault. Oh. In the limo, after she won her Oscar, he said to her, quote, What makes you think you deserve it? There are hundreds of actors who have worked for years for the recognition you just got handed to you. He also alleges that she that he was physically and sexually abusive to her. In one particularly horrific incident, she says that he finally came home around 4.30 a.m. drunk and woke me up. The next thing I knew, he'd pulled me out of the bed, screaming at me, shaking me. I was scared. I was sobbing. Then he threw me on the bed, started ripping off his clothes and mine. I was crying. No, no, no. Please, Bill, no. The next thing I remember is Bill ramming himself inside of me as I sobbed. I will also remind listeners that Marley Matlin is deaf. And while I am not suggesting that this would be less than traumatizing for anyone, I just also want to note that being woken up in that way for someone who is deaf, I feel like must have been especially Uh. terrifying as well Um, and disorienting. Uh, Marley Matlin's translator Jack recalls a particularly brutal fight on a 1988 European trip. He says, just as I came out of my room, Marley came out of theirs. She had bruises on her face and the start of a black eye. I could see Bill behind her and he had a split lip. 
Marley wanted to go home or to call the police. I didn't know how we could do either. Bill had the tickets, none of us had any money, and I didn't know how to contact the police in Yugoslavia. When her uh, memoir was published, the relationship she had with William Hurt was described in the media using terms that like passionate, volatile, tumultuous. Even Simon & Schuster, who published the book, um, didn't ever label it as what it was, which was abusive. And it should also be noted that Marley Matlin isn't the only woman who's accused him of abuse. In 1989, his ex, Sandra Jennings, alleged that he used violent physical and verbal abuse against her. She also claimed he smashed her across the face five days after the birth of their child while she was holding her child at the time. Um, her attorney also alleges that she had two abortions over the course of her relationship with him, the second being because he was beating her up so much at the time. Um, during the trial uh, regarding all of that, uh, he was supported by some of his famous friends who cited his heroic struggle dealing with substance abuse. The important thing, said friend Glenn Close, is that Bill is really doing something about it. He's seeking support and he's passionate about it. And for that reason, he has my deepest respect. He's in great shape, the best he's ever been in. I think he's actually quite a different person. Glenn. William Hurt has denied Sandra Jennings' accusations of abuse, but he barely disputes Marley Matlin's. In response to her memoir, he released a statement to Access Hollywood saying, My own recollection is that we both apologized and both did a great deal to heal our own lives. Of course, I did and do apologize for any pain I caused, and I know we have both grown. I wish Marley and her family nothing but good. And to answer my initial question, yes, he is notoriously known to be difficult on sets. (laughs) But when I came across that, I was like, my goodness, that is some context I had no idea about. I I mean, he's uh, been uh, nominated for Oscars since that came out. Um, Well, uh, I, I did a quick Google. Because yeah. I, I was curious. Sure. Um, uh, my, my big thing, as soon as you, you, the comment about how much he tried to tear her down the second she won an Oscar, I was like, that feels. Uh, so then I was, you had commented that he was an Oscar winner himself. So I was like, oh, was he mad because she won one before him? Um, but no, he won his before her. But uh, William Hurt won an Oscar in 1986. Marley won hers in 1987. So who felt like he was being pushed off a pedestal and suddenly she was going to be the focus of the relationship because now she was an Oscar winner and she had brought herself up to his level acting wise in his brain and he couldn't handle it. Uh, hashtag justice for Marley. Justice for Marley for real. Her career um, really, really took a hit. Um, after she, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I I didn't even get into all of it just in, for the sake of time, but yes, hashtag justice for Marley. It's, it's such a, it's such a, you know, and again, just how the media treated her, um, Joy Behar, she was guest hosting for Larry King Live and she, Marley Matlin was on to promote the book and she said to her like, I hear you had some really hot sex with William Hurt, like, give me any details, like that kind of vibe. Like, it's just when that book came out, it was pre-Me Too, and it was, like, just not taken the way that you would want those kinds of um, brave statements to be taken, you know? And and again, it just feels like she was, you know, a lot younger than him. They met on the set of a movie, which was, I believe, the one that she won the Oscar for. 
Uh, and he apparently was like, he would like terrorize her on that set. And the director, and I don't remember, I didn't put it in my notes again just for time, but the director of that film, who was a woman, said, it seemed like it was just kind of part of his process to really terrorize her. And I was going to take her aside and tell her not to let it get to her, but I didn't. <laughs> I was like, wow. Hashtag women for women. I mean, wow. again, if I was the director, I would be having a conversation <laughs> with him that would say things like, you can't terrorize your co-star. That's not a part of your process. Yep. You're just being an asshole. Yeah. And what I'm learning is that this world needs Lauren Ash as a director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, I've, uh, listen, I always go back and forth, but more and more, I'm like, put me in, coach. Yes. So Hillary Schwartz, the first AD says in her deposition that she knew that they were there that day without the permission of CSX. Mm. Randall Miller says she should have told this to the whole crew, and he says that's why she got kicked out of the DGA. I could not find confirmation or denial of that. Um, He also said he feels disgusted that she ran off when the train came to save herself. I think that's kind of a low blow in that I think everyone was trying to run to save themselves. Well, it's a, it's this little thing in science called fight or flight. It is. And if you're put in a situation, your brain says, get the fuck out of there. Yeah, when there's you a, know. a raging freight train coming towards you, your instinct is to flee. Yeah. So if that's your instinct, good job. Well, again, get out of the way. The, yeah. oh. If I'd had my rehearsal, again, well, to me, it's like... Yeah. Anyway, but so let's get into CSX for a second. Michael Ryan was the engineer of the CSX train that hit Sarah and Joyce. He had been employed by CSX for almost 40 years at the time of the accident. He is the second oldest employee in the area, so he basically gets whatever run he wants to work. Um, He says the train that day was a heavy train that would take two miles to stop for a service breaking, and he doesn't know how long it would take for an emergency breaking. TJ Temples was the conductor of the train that day. At the time of the incident, the train speed was 57 miles per hour when the speed limit was 49. Oh. Yeah. And for context, 60 miles per hour is around 100 kilometers per hour. I should have done that comparison. I Um, So it's it's fast. I I genuinely, you said miles? Canadian brain heard kilometers. And so yeah. I oh, no, it's, took it a different way. But yeah, yeah, I see what we're saying. It's Holy fast. shit. Yeah. Temples said they were already slowing down at the time, but records show that the brakes were not deployed until after the moment of impact. Records also show there were 100 horn blasts made over 28 seconds. Michael Ryan did not use the service brake, the dynamic brake, or the emergency brake. There is speculation that he was trying to avoid the train derailing. At the time of his deposition, conductor T.J. Temples had been taken off of the CSX schedule for speeding. He was caught doing 54 miles per hour in a 10-mile-per-hour zone. Good God. He is still employed by them, but he was suspended. According to David Rollins, Michael Ryan and T.J. Temples have struck and killed between five and ten people with trains they have operated by their own admission. Again, I cannot confirm or deny that. That's what he's saying. They were asked why they didn't call in when they saw that there were people on the sides of the tracks. 
they were basically saying if they called in every time they saw people on the sides of the tracks, they'd constantly be calling in. That makes sense to me. I get it. Um, Basically, they said if no one is physically on the track, they didn't tend to call it in. Michael Ryan said he sees people on the tracks virtually every day. People play chicken with him. He toots the horn. Typically, they move. If someone's putting rocks or engine blocks on the tracks that needs to be reported, I'm like, who? Again, people want, some people want to watch the world burn, I swear. Yeah, um, but uh, again, if they just see people that move, it doesn't need to be reported. Bill Hill is a train operations expert and accident consultant who was interviewed. He says he would have called in seeing that many people. So it was a group of between 25 and 35. He says he would have called that in. Now, to me, again, I don't know how that would have helped, though, because the train is still moving, right? Like, I don't know whether right. calling it in would have changed the outcome, unfortunately. But again, I'm not an expert. Bill Hill also wants to remind that Tina Kicklighter was criminally trespassing by being there without permission because even though this was on Rainier land and she worked for Rainier, the train company CSX owns a certain amount of the physical land around the tracks as well as the actual tracks themselves, no matter whose land it's on. So that's like a general rule is that they don't just own the tracks. They also own the land that is under the, that, that the tracks are right. on, right? And there is a boundary of a certain radius around. So the whole point is, is that if she was there, she was also trespassing and she, well, she also, it's, again, he said, she said about whether or not Mm. she thought they had been denied or not. So the autopsy, Ted Mathis and the assist is, was the assistant coroner and deputy sheriff. He examined Sarah's body the night before the accident, before the autopsy, he told the press that the bed, the hospital bed had caused her death. He later has said he doesn't remember what he had said to Variety that night. Randall Miller claims that Ted Mathis also worked for Rayoneer. Again, I cannot confirm or deny that. David Rollins and Randall Miller are essentially suggesting that the theory that the bed was what killed her rather than the train was put forth to take blame off of CSX. But I have watched the footage and again, it does definitely look like the bed hit her into the side of the train. And assistant coroner Ted Mathis agreed with that. So David Rollins brought in Dr. Cyril Wett, forensic pathologist. He has consulted on many famous cases, such as Elvis Presley, JonBenet Ramsey, JFK, the list goes on. And when they show him in the documentary, he is examining a dead body that is completely cut open, and that is something I will never unsee. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Dr. Weck brags about doing 400 to autopsy a year. But the National Association of Medical Examiners, a.k.a. NAME, recommends (laughs) that pathologists perform a maximum of 250 to 350 autopsies annually, but also says that this number is being exceeded as the demand for these services far exceeds the supply of qualified practitioners, which again, if you become a medical examiner, remember, we will come to your graduation. That is a promise we have made and we will keep. Just know that. Yeah. I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to see. I can't wait for our graduation tour. Me too. Well, my hope hope is that it's a it's like a bunch of friends who are listening to this in med school or not. Yep. uh, And they're like, you know what? This is going to be a great thing. We're going to go and oh my god. You know what? It'd be so helpful to us if you would all go to the same school. If we will, of course, travel. But ideally, I mean, if you could. Um, 
maybe I'll go to school in wine country. No. (laughs) (laughs) While we're touring. While we're touring. Again, listen, all we're saying is if you think you have the stomach for it and the interest, this country desperately needs medical examiners. And when I'm about, after I tell you what I'm about to tell you, again, the offer stands now. We may even throw something else to sweeten the pot, a hoodie or something. We'll, we'll deal with gifts again. We'll figure it out. We're, we're, I didn't realize we're bringing grad gifts. I thought well, we were the gifts, but wait, wait, and you'll you'll find. Well, out I why. guess not if not if I show up without a bra, and then I'm not gonna. <laughs> that's not a gift anyone needs to see. That's a that callback. A callback. Um, okay, police investigator Joe Gardner says there was human tissue found on the fuel tanks on the side of the train, not on the front of the train. This would corroborate the bed theory. Ted Mathis agrees with this. And again, when you watch the video, it seems clear. But Cyril Weck disagrees. According to him, there were no markings on Sarah Jones' body to indicate that she was struck by anything other than the train. But I find it kind of hard to believe that the marks on a woman who was struck by a speeding freight train would have been able to be determined. Um, Joyce Gilliard did say that she was unrecognizable after the accident. Again, she was hit at a very, very fast speed. Um... I also want to just note that when this documentary was released in 2018, Cyril Weck would have been 87. And that's not me saying that he isn't qualified to still do his job, but I did think it was important to mention. And I also think I need to mention that I believe he was just reviewing the autopsy report. I don't know that he reviewed the body himself. So again, it feels like some gray area there. Um, Because how long after did he come in? I believe he was brought in for the documentary, which would have been four years later. Oh, and they wouldn't have exhumed her body for that. I don't believe so. I believe he was probably just going by the autopsy report, which could have had photographs, certainly. But again, I just Mm. present it like I see it. When Ted Mathis, of course, who was the the assistant coroner, was told that Weck disagreed with the bed theory, Mathis said, well, if that's his opinion, I'm not an expert by any means. To which I'd like to quote Tyra Banks and say, we were all rooting for you, Ted Mathis. Why, why did you give up that quickly? My God. It <laughs> should also be noted. shouting out Tyra Banks. Well, wait for it, because I'm about to rescind it. It should also be noted, however, that the post-accident toxicological testing that is required after this type of accident did not happen. Meaning... Neither the engineer nor the conductor of the train were drug tested or interviewed at the time of the accident, and they only made a statement a week after the accident. When this was pointed out to Ted Mathis in his videoed deposition, his reaction was basically like, oh, shoot, yeah, I guess that was supposed to happen. Basically like an oops vibe. So again, we were rooting for you, and now I just shake my head. Um... But this brings up a question. Can we trust Dr. Cyril Weck's professional opinion? I looked into him. In January 20, sorry, in January 2006, he was indicted on 84 counts. These included mail fraud, wire fraud, and trading unclaimed bodies in exchange for use of lab space at Carlo University. Cyril... The investigation began over concerns about a $5,000 payment made to him for writing a report used in a civil lawsuit about a man killed in a 2002 struggle with Mount Oliver police, and he had recommended that homicide charges be filed in that death. This could be argued because he was holding public office at the time. 
uh, as a medical examiner that he was trying to use his public office to gain privately. Again, he took this Mm. money. It could be a violation of the State Ethics Act. It could be a violation of the Federal Hobbs Act. He was also accused of using county resources like office equipment, vehicles, and employees to run errands for himself and his private business, as well as creating false travel agency bills to inflate the cost of airfare for his private clients. Um, He, of course, has denied any wrongdoing. But the day he was indicted was also the day that he he quit. He he consults, but I don't believe that he continues to like. I don't think he's a medical examiner, like a public figure anymore. elected official. Um, So I'm mostly concerned about the trading of the unclaimed bodies. That was the thing for me more than the more than the fraud. Um, Regardless, uh, there was a hung jury when he was tried on some of the charges. And then the rest of the counts were dropped when federal prosecutors cited a judge's ruling and threw out much of the government's evidence. This meant they dropped all the remaining fraud and theft counts against him. So he was never technically acquitted of anything. And I know that we're, of course, innocent until proven guilty, but I just think it's important to note he was never officially acquitted. So there's that. Mm. Now, I'd like to talk about other things that David Rollins uncovered in his documentary trying to prove that Randall Miller should not have been put in jail. Number one, the location of the incident. According to the OSHA investigation, Sarah was 100 feet onto the bridge. You could see the water underneath her. This would mean she was technically struck by the train in Long County, not Wayne County. So, if this is correct, Wayne County shouldn't have been prosecuting the case in the first place. The border between the counties is at the low watermark on the Wayne County side, which is in the middle of the trestle. Now, obviously, a good lawyer could have used this defense at trial, but I will remind, Randall did plead out, so there was never that opportunity in court. And I do believe that he still could have been tried then in Long County. So I don't know hmm. that, that, but again, that's, I'm speculating on that. Also, this measurement is interesting to me because I found that the bridge was 117 feet long. So if she was 117 feet onto the bridge, that means that they were, they were further than they, than I thought. Because, and I'll, I'll post a picture because it's hard to visualize, but if if the the trestle the trestle is only over like a fifth of the bridge, and my sure. understanding was that they and that's the side on on the the land, um or, right. or the bigger piece of land on the Wayne County side. So I assumed they were they were filming right there on the edge of the water. But if they were a hundred feet onto that bridge, that's far. That that means that they were almost yeah. to the other side. Now is it also possible that her body? And I'm again that I'm speculating, and this is horrible. I'm sorry, but it, it, with the force of the train, could it have been thrown? Could it have been moved? Is it possible that she wasn't that far along? I think that's also possible, which then would make this point kind of moot because, sure, right? Like to me, it's kind of hard to speculate. You know, again, but I, I'm just again presenting what he was presenting for us to add to the mix. Number two, Randall's insurance company was plotting against him to avoid a payout. Jill Pompey is ProSite Insurance's VP of Claims. She wrote in an email, and I quote, We are going to push to get the case dismissed, but if they refuse, we'll have to force them to do some work in hopes that we'll force their hand to file bankruptcy. When asked in her deposition, did you write that? 
Jill says she did. Other reps for ProSite were asked in depositions, and they all said they had never heard of an insurance company doing something like that. So basically, she was trying to avoid having to make ProSite make a payout for the production loss to the filmmakers by forcing them into bankruptcy. Randall Miller also says that the lawyer that ProSite hired for him, named Matt Stone, had worked with CSX multiple times in the past, which is a conflict of interest. Randall says he tried to hire another lawyer, but that ProSite wouldn't let him. Matt Stone says he handled dozens of cases for CSX. The filmmakers had paid $57,979 for insurance on the movie, but ProSite did not pay the millions that Randall Miller says they lost because, again, the production got shut down permanently. Right. Um, the filmmakers sued ProSite, uh, but ProSite refused to pay back that production loss. So that's another interesting kind of point. I don't know that that proves eh, – I don't know whether that proves, like, that they could have colluded – with someone potentially to get him put in jail. Again, he pled out. So right. also important to remember here. It's interesting to me that they made this documentary because it's like you pled out. Like you could have gone to trial. And I understand that in his mind he feared going to trial. Sure. And we'll get into that in a second too. But it's just interesting to me that this documentary is posing all of these potential theories of other things that are going on. And it's like, well, yes, but if you had gone to trial and were not given a fair trial, then that would feel like, that would that this would make more sense. But again, you pled out. Anyway. Yeah. Number three, a police cover-up. Police Captain Joe Naya was the lead investigator for the Wayne County Sheriff's Department at the time of the accident. He was the lead investigator for 30 years. Joe Naya thought it was an accident when it was called in, not a homicide, so he sent Joe Gardner in his place to investigate. Joe Naya says he doesn't feel that the evidence supports a criminal indictment of Randall Miller. Randall Miller says he met Joe Naya because he says he was hired by the sheriff to make a movie while he was in jail about the drug program in town. And he claims that they would let him out of jail from time to time to film this movie. Now, again, I cannot find anything to corroborate this other than Randall Miller saying it's true. Hmm. But if that is true, that's wild. Yeah. You've oh. put him in your, in your, in your local jail for safety infractions and then you're like hey man why don't you come out and film with us a little bit <laughs> man they make a movie for us like that's yeah scary to me but anyway joe gardner uh who was the investigator uh and his wife filed for bankruptcy twice so there was also a suggestion in the documentary that joe gardner was being paid off by rayonier or csx or prosite or who knows who and that he took the payout because he needed the money. He allegedly held the crew at the scene for six hours, but he didn't hold the CSX drivers or the Rayoneer reps. Now, I don't feel like he could have taken a bribe that quickly. Yeah. Right? Like, to me, he showed up. He saw it was an accident or assumed. Right. In terms of, like, all of this is about nuance in terms of who is ultimately responsible. It's nuance. It's right. about, you know... um, culpability and, and where it where it lies so to me to suggest that he had taken this bribe at the time doesn't really make much sense to me because i don't know that like the csx drivers were coming over and like handing him cash and being like let us go we'll explain later like that that feels yeah not really plausible to me to me it was like the movie crew was shooting here on the tracks and a train c came and hit and killed a woman 
this is the the crew is the outside force here. So we're going to hold them for questioning. We'll let the rest of you go. Like to me, again, that doesn't seem crazy. I don't know police protocol, so I could be wrong. But again, I don't think that that proves this theory about a cover up. If there's something else, fine. I don't think that that proves it is my point. Um, Apparently, after his deposition, he retired and moved to Florida. Uh, Again, okay, that's could be a coincidence. Also, like, I don't know what to say about that. Um, now, the one thing I find interesting is that he, uh, David Rollins is alleging that the train videos, the video from the front of the train, was never yeah. given to the defense team. If that is true, that is a massive issue, but I could not find any other information about that either. Number four, Rayonier has a secret motive, which I've alluded to before. The pulp mill was going through massive bad press because they had been polluting into the local water systems. Fish were dying. It was becoming a really huge issue. So there is this theory, of course, that Jack Perrette, who was the general manager for Rainier at the time, might have thought that the movie shooting there could take some of that attention off of those issues in the form of positive press. This, of course, was referenced in that email from Tina Kicklater I mentioned before. And certainly they would have a vested interest when the thing they were doing to try and make good press makes equally bad, if not worse, press. I could see them having a vested interest. But again, I don't really have any other facts or evidence, and neither does he, is the point, to (laughs) to back up some sort of larger kind of scandal. Number five, and this is a big one. There is the theory that the local workers and the locals in general were against Randall Miller. Jason Rosen, who was a business agent at the local Savannah IATSE, emailed Randall saying, and this is before they got there, saying, hey, heard you're coming back to Savannah. Is it true? He then wanted to, he said he wanted to have an off the record chat saying, hoping to prevent you from finding the rabbit hole and falling into Wonderland. David Rollins in the documentary comments, is that a threat? And I was like, I thought that that meant that it was like, Come to me if you need drugs. Like that didn't read to me like a threat. Sure. I mean, I don't know how you take it, but I was like, that feels like a bit of a stretch. I did I did not see that as a threat, no. Right? Yeah. I don't even know how I I don't even know what that is. Anyway. Yeah. It's like a weird be careful because once you get here, uh, there's a lot going on. But like I don't take it as like a for real though. You don't want to get here. It felt to me like yeah. he was like, hey, man, I want to give you some I want to give you some off the record advice about the shit that's going down. Like, it doesn't feel to me sure. like a threat. To me, it felt like it was like, hey, listen, we got to do things a little bit differently or they're, they're cracking down. Like, it felt like he was trying sure. to help him out to me. But again, these are all speculations. Um, Jay Self, the ex-film commissioner of Savannah, Georgia, spoke out about the incident at the time, of course, of Sarah's death. Um, but he had been fired. So Randall Miller thinks that Jay Self blames Randall for his firing. I I don't know, again, how or why. I'm also unsure what it proves. I don't know. Again, Randall also mentioned that the, and this is, again, Randall Miller said this in the documentary. He said, the four people indicted in the Sarah Jones case were Jews from California. He also went on to say, the problem with Georgia is that California and New York make their trains, make their crews train. But Georgia is a right-to-work state, so they don't make their crew take safety training. I'm like, where is this going? Um, He said that OSHA, 
in Savannah, Georgia, is mostly for factory accidents as opposed to movie sets. Now, OSHA did an, an investigation to the Sarah Jones case and handed out lots of fines to lots of people involved in this production for the sure. record. Um, but Randall Miller says that he had made two prior movies in Georgia. The first, he hired 50-50 Georgia locals and California imports. Um, the second one, it was a few more. And then for this third movie, Midnight Rider, he hired mostly locals. So my question is, Randall Miller, if that is true, then why on day one, when you are working with people that you don't know, yeah. are you being so flip about the train tracks? And also, may I remind you of what I said that his lawyer Ed Garland said before? I'll read it again. Randy Miller had no perception of danger and was relying on his team that had never failed him that he was in a safe place. He'd been told there was just two trains and those had gone. So which is it? Is it that your crew was mostly people that were local that weren't properly safety trained and that you didn't really know and that they were against you? Or were these people that you trusted with your life as described by your lawyer saying these people had never failed him? He was relying on them. He believed he was in a safe place. A lot of contradiction here to me. Yeah. I also love the idea that they've just never let him down. Did they have the chance to let you down yet? He didn't know. He hadn't worked with with a with a majority of them with a, ever. It was there was a pre-shoot. It wasn't even day 1. It was day 0. Like to suggest that it was like these people had never let him down. I guess they hadn't because you hadn't met a chunk of them before. And yeah. sure, some of them he could have worked with on the other movies, of course. But if he's saying he went from 50 to 60% Georgia locals and then on this one it was closer to 90 or more, that's a huge chunk of people that you've never worked with before, which yeah. is fine. But again, I just point out what I see yeah. and the inconsistencies. Now, a couple more things. Rayonier blamed Sarah in its legal filings for, quote, not exercising ordinary care for her own safety, and they can just suck a dick. Oh, 100% and choke on it while they're at and it. And I also should also, <laughs> I also should add, I shouldn't say that because you know what? Some of them might like it. Uh, then there's also no shame in sucking dicks. So you know what? They can just go to hell. How about that? <laughs> uh, okay. Thoughts a few more thoughts. David Rollins has 26 unedited video depositions of people involved with this case on his website. They were made by the defense team for Randall Miller. It's over, well over 52 hours. I did not watch them all, but I did watch a bunch. Of course you did. Uh-huh. Uh, so a couple of things I've pulled out of there, um, and a couple of things are just from the documentary. These are a little all over the place because I was just getting to the, like, it was getting to the 11th hour. So just bear with me and and, and roll with the punches. David Rollins says that the Jones family was approached to be in the film, but they did not opt to be, and that he hopes it brings them peace. I don't know that it does, but okay. Um, here's something, and this really bothered me. They cut together what they could, what they shot of scene 14, and they used it in the documentary. And I'm going to say it, I think that's crass as fuck. And I'm going to tell you why. The only reason why that footage exists is because Sarah got the camera off the fucking tracks. And you have the audacity now to cut together a version of that scene to like show what it could have looked like and what an auteur 
Randall Miller is and what his vision could have looked like or whatever. And I'm alleging and speculating there. I don't know what their intentions were with it, but I think it's crass. I think it's inappropriate. Again, you're lucky. You, it, it was like, to me, it was it was like the footage is dead, guys. A woman died. A woman died saving that footage. That footage is dead with her. Yeah. Out of respect to her, you let it go. But it's like the ego has to edit it and put it out somewhere. And because this is a close friend of his and clearly he was working with him on this documentary, to me, that that was just mm-hmm. like – it. so many things cross a line in this case for me. But that was one of them where I was just like, no, she, you only have it because of her, because mm-hmm. she was good at her job. How dare you? The same oh. man who said her only job was to, to slap the slate, put that edited scene – the parts of that edited scene in his documentary and well i mean of course he did because he's got such a big fucking ego that he needs someone to look at that and praise him and make the comment of oh i wish that movie had gotten made so we could have seen your vision and i'll give you a spoiler it wasn't gonna be good (laughs) (laughs) yep oh listen i love it i love it now here's another thing that rubbed me Dr. Peter Michael Britt, MD, was the attending radiologist on February 20th, 2014 in the radiology department at Savannah Memorial Hospital. He was interviewed in the documentary about Joyce Gilliard's injuries and spoke about how there were there were no further follow-up images taken. Are you allowed to discuss somebody's medical records for a documentary without her permission? I don't think so. Also, for the record, her not needing further x-rays on her badly broken arm at that specific hospital doesn't prove shit about anything about the nature of the extent of the break. It does not prove anything about the complications that she may have gone through in her healing process, in her rehab process. I thought that was a really inappropriate choice on both the part of the filmmaker and on the part of this, this radiologist. Again, I don't know what the legality is there, but I was surprised. Um... Joyce sued the Midnight Rider filmmakers and did receive a settlement. That's her prerogative. I think she should have. She was then filmed by a private investigator, and some of that footage was also used in this documentary, showing her working on a set. Basically, they were suggesting she didn't deserve that settlement because she was still able to work. And to that I say, this is her trade. This is how she works to make currency to live. And you have no idea how comfortable or uncomfortable it is to use her arm to do her job for the rest of her life now. How dare you imply that this woman isn't allowed to file a lawsuit to try and get some sort of compensation for what she went through. I think that's shitty. Now we need to take a minute to talk about Randall Miller. Randall Miller says, that day did I set out to risk the lives of my crew and the entire budget of the movie for a 30-second shot? No, I didn't do that. Okay, I know that wasn't your intention that day, but you went and shot knowing you didn't have a permit. Yeah. Although you're saying you didn't know that you didn't know. You didn't get the email, so you didn't know. Someone should have screamed it at you, apparently. Okay. (laughs) Apparently, okay. Currently, Randall Miller is 59 years old. He has made 10 films, fully union. His first directing credit was an episode of TV series Parker Lewis Can't Lose. He has also acted in an episode of Highway to Heaven. And I want to say right now, keep Michael Landon's name out of your dirty mouth. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. And I also want to extend that to saying that if anybody knows that Michael Landon did something bad, 
I will die. Please don't tell me. Let me live forever, thinking that Michael Landon was the angel he seemed to be. Okay? Let me ride on the highway to heaven for the rest of my life. I beg. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I need to, uh, we need to believe. I'm, I, again, I don't want to hear it. Please don't contact us. If you have a family member who was wronged by Michael Landon, I don't want to know, okay? I don't want to know. Yeah. Please. Yeah, that, let her have this. Let me have one, please. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he could not love more that. Michael Landon is where that line in the sand is. I don't know why it is. He resonated with me as a child. I watched that show, pardon the pun, religiously, and I just... Well, I'm being glib, of course. I, I will... I will if, if he did something bad, of course, I will... No, we're not gonna... We're not gonna... Don't go back on it. Don't walk back. You're allowed this. You're allowed this. I just want him to be good. I just want yeah. him to be good. Um... Randall Miller was silent after the accident that killed Sarah. He says this was at the advice of his lawyers. Um, He says that he took the plea deal as they had also indicted his wife, Jody Savin, and he didn't want to risk their children not having a parent. That's fair, too. I get that. I will give him that. 100%. The max that they could have gotten was 13 years, and he says, quote, 98% of the time you lose. Now, I don't know where that stat was coming from. If he really believes that he was innocent, and I will also remind... Historically, no film director has ever gone to prison for an onset accident. So, okay. But then he said the quote, and I transcribed this to share. If this could happen to me, a white man from Pasadena with a credit score in the 800s, it could happen to you. Uh, uh, And sure, sure. Okay. Yes. On one hand, I'm like. Okay, yeah, yeah, you are a person of privilege, and I appreciate that you're acknowledging your privilege. Thank you. Yeah. But then also, this is a weird, like, scared straight moment. Like, I don't know. It's just, like, I don't think you being white or having a high credit score or being from California had anything to do with your faults in this (laughs) situation, well, yeah, I guess he was saying that typically you'd think that my privilege would have gotten me out of this right away, but it didn't, so watch your backs. Also, like, maybe use it as a teaching moment to, like, you know, get get permits and double-check safety, and even if you think it's too much, triple-check the safety. Make sure everybody is safe. And that's, that's the thing. It, rather than taking this moment to say that... What he what he said, why not take this moment to say a version of what you just said, which is this was an incredibly terrible situation and, you know, let this be a reminder not to cut corners, to take the extra few minutes, to ask and make sure. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. well, buckle in. Oh, no. Randall only served 379 days in jail. He was released from jail on March 23rd, 2016, after the director's attorney, his attorney, sorry, said they negotiated a two-for-one deal in the hallway with Assistant District Attorney John Johnson. Randall Miller's initial plea agreement occurred the year before, and the DA office agreed and decided that the original two-year sentence was, quote, improper. Uh, 
So the office amended it to one year, and then George uh, George Harrison, I'm so sorry, Judge Harrison, honored the agreement and released Miller based on time served. So he was supposed to do two years, the 20 grand fine, and then 10 years where he can't work right. on, in film and television, but he essentially served a year and a week-ish, and then they let him out on time served. But is is the still, like, can't do anything in movies for 10 years? Randall Miller has described himself saying he is not a risk taker. I put the alarm on my house every night before I go to bed. Which is interesting. Because I think one could argue that violating your parole is a pretty risky move. Wouldn't you say? Which is exactly what Randall Miller did when he directed a movie in 2019. That's right. Randall Miller directed the comedy Higher Grounds in Serbia and Colombia, which he says he did because of the ambiguity in his probation probation documents. This came three years into the 10-year probation, which you called it, absolutely was still on the table. So even though he was released from jail, the probation for 10 years still stood, which included not working in any of those jobs. So on March 23rd, 2016, during sentencing, Wayne County Superior Court Judge Anthony Harrison said the filmmaker is, quote, prohibited from serving as director, first assistant director, or supervisor with responsibility for safety in any film production. But on April 26, 2019, Michael M. Smith of the Atlanta law firm Baker Donaldson said in a note provided to the reps for the actors on higher grounds, after careful review, I have formed the legal opinion. Mr. Miller is allowed to direct so long as he is not the crew member assigned with the task of safety on set. It should be noted that this is the same Michael M. Smith who is listed as an executive producer on Higher Grounds. Oh, for fuck's sakes. In addition, Randall Miller's attorney, Ed Garland, told Deadline that Miller wasn't in violation of probation in taking the Higher Grounds job. Ed Garland added it was permissible for him to shoot both inside and outside of the U.S., as per his understanding of his probation directive. Quote, The day that sentence was entered, the language of that sentence indicated he could continue to direct. This is his lawyer, Ed Garland, talking. He said he was only prohibited from directing if he was supervising safety. In February 2021, a Georgia judge decided not to send Randall Miller back to jail for shooting the movie in 2019, but did warn him not to make any more films for the remainder of his sentence. There was a lengthy hearing um, at Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney. Oh, sorry. Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney Keith Higgins argued that Miller displayed, quote, inexcusable carelessness in shooting the film without checking with Georgia authorities first. Instead of asking for permission, quote, he did what he wanted to do and now comes before the court asking for forgiveness. That's what Higgins said. I'm really sorry that I misunderstood you, Randall Miller told the judge. Apparent, he appeared remotely via uh, WebEx. Sure. He says, I apologize for my ignorance. At one point in the hearing, his defense lawyer, Ed Garland, cross-examined the lead prosecutor from the case, John Johnson, about the plea negotiations in March 2015. Um, and he basically started to tear apart the linguistics of it all. And Ed Garland basically argued that the modifier with responsibility for safety must have referred to each term in the series under the rules of the English language. 
So he cannot act as a director with a responsibility for safety, as a this with a responsibility of a safety. He's so... He, Yes, grammatically what he's saying could be true, but come on, guys. That's ridiculous. John Johnson countered saying, we speak in common terms. When we say you cannot be a director, that's what it means. Judge Harrison made it clear that he intended the sentence to mean that Miller could not work as a director under any circumstances for the duration of his probation, but he denied the prosecution's motion to revoke probation on the grounds that Randall Miller may have been confused. He did make it clear, however, that Randall Miller remains bound by the terms going forward. You're not to act as a director, period, he said. And then I'm like, not to act as a director? Now it makes it sound like he's just not allowed to play a director in a film or a TV show. Oh. Yeah, you got, if if they try and like do a, if they try and do a reach around with language. Oh. Be brutally clear in how you exactly. respond to it. Exactly. It was, yeah, oh. it definitely was just, ugh. Um, also, I just feel like these details are interesting. The completed feature film, Higher Grounds, follows a vegan barista played by Glow's Kate Nash, whose coffee shop is sinking and gears up as the underdogs in the World Barista Championships. Higher Grounds has yet to be released. It was funded by a large trust that seeks to promote veganism and which has financial has financed several pro-vegan documentaries. Who represents the trust? You guessed it. None other than Michael M. Smith, the same Atlanta attorney advising on his parole deal. Higher Grounds was produced by Randall Miller and his wife Jody Savin, and it was co-written by Randall Miller. And any guesses? Oh, that's right. Documentarian and David Rollins. Stop it. <laughs> it's just to me that it's like, we get it. You guys are thick as thieves. Like, we get it. Okay, got it. But you, I, it, I don't know. Like, the whole thing just starts to feel like really creepy fraternity or something. Um, anyway, last bit on this. Randall Miller told the court he has struggled to find any work after being released from jail. He said trying to find teaching jobs has been not working. He said many in the industry don't want to work with him due to the notoriety of his case. He Good. said he's made less than $20,000 over a four-year period and that he had to get loans from relatives. This hearing had been repeatedly delayed, most recently due to Randall Miller's diagnosis with COVID-19. And the last I checked, according to IMDb, Higher Grounds seems to have been renamed Coffee Wars. Maybe trying to get away from the bad press? <laughs> okay. First of all, never stop with that because you know that I love it so much. Um, I I want to have sympathy, but also it's obvious that he's like, well, obviously I'm a director and I should be able to work in this field and I can't even get a teaching job. You should not teach people. But that's just, it does feel you know. Like, yeah, it does feel... That feels you, like a weird you one. You should not mold the minds of the next directors. And that feels very, I barely made any money. It's like, what other jobs did you try? Did you try something outside of the field? Something maybe where you can work outside away from other people so they don't have to hear you speak? Uh, I have a lot of feelings, obviously, yep. Uh, yep. about Mr. Randall, not my job, uh, Miller. <laughs> um but we're going to take one more quick break. Yeah. So hit the can, make sure that you're hydrated, and we will be right back on this episode 
of True Crime and Cocktails. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, I got unapologetically testy about Randall Miller. I can't wait to see who I'm getting feisty over next. Listen, we're bringing it home. Yeah. Just a couple of updates, some final thoughts. But yeah, listen, I don't know that the feistiness is going to go away. According to David Rollins, an early cut of his documentary was shown to the FBI, and as a result, an investigation into the corruption in Wayne County was opened. This was reported in 2017 and was reported by many, many different publications, news sources, all of the above. But the source listed in all of those publications and news sources was Randall Miller's attorneys. Hmm. At the time, neither Wayne County Sheriff John Carter nor his investigators who oversaw the criminal investigation had been contacted by the FBI, nor had at least three key victim witnesses, a key witness in the criminal trial, or the prosecutor on the case, Assistant DA John Johnson. He told The Hollywood Reporter, I would be surprised if anyone was investigating when the defendant pleaded guilty and was represented by competent attorneys. I have found no update on this FBI thing either way since 2017. Huh. Sarah Jones' parents won an $11.2 million judgment in the civil suit against CSX, Film Allman, which is the production company, Randall Miller, Jody Set, like that right. whole kind of thing that was created to make the movie, and Ray Anir for the death of Sarah. The decision came about 20 to 30 minutes after jurors asked the judge about allocating of percentages among those who the Jones family sued for culpability. Specifically, jurors ruled that the Jones should be given just under $2 million for pain and suffering and $9.2 million for economic losses. The jury found CSX liable for 35%, or roughly $3.92 million. Sure. Randall Miller for 28%. Rayonier at 18%. Producer Jody Savin at 70, sorry, 7%. First AD Hillary Schwartz at 7%. And Jay Sedrish with 5%. The jurors also said that Sarah Jones had zero liability. Despite CSX also trying to blame the victims in their defense strategy, they also said that Nick Gantz Medin Studios also had no legal liability, and they also found that location manager Charlie Baxter had zero liability. Interesting, again, how this mm. shakes out. Um, so, Tina Kicklighter moved to Alabama to work at another paper mill. No charges were ever filed against her. Jack Parrott moved to Tennessee to work at another paper mill. He was never interviewed by law enforcement or the district attorney. His only deposition was by Randall Miller's defense team. Jay Sedrish remains on 10 years probation. He was expelled by the DGA, but is appealing. Hillary Schwartz remains on 10 years probation. She filed to have the sentence reduced, but was denied. So, my final thoughts. Sarah Jones' parents, Richard and Elizabeth, who turned their attention to preventing similar disasters like what occurred on Midnight Rider on other movie sets, launched the Safety for Sarah campaign, which seeks to foster on-set safety through awareness and accountability, and whose Sarah Jones Film Foundation makes safety grants to university film students in their daughter's name. 
Recently, they were asked about Helena Hutchins' death, and they said they hoped that Sarah's death could have helped prevent Helena's. Following her death, Sarah Jones' name was added to slates all over Hollywood, and now Helena's has also been added by many. Eight years have passed since the accident, but Joyce Gilliard says she still grapples with the PTSD that stems from that event. The Rock has committed to only using rubber guns in any of his movies moving forward at Seven Bucks Productions. As many have suggested, um, productions could maybe stop using real guns on set altogether, as it is pretty easy to effectively use CGI for blasts, all of the above. But some armorers feel that you need to use real guns in order to get authentic reactions from actors. But to that I say, you let us worry about that. Okay? <laughs> we got it. We're good. We got it. I would also offer to the mix, why don't we also encourage writers to try and write and tell stories that just have less guns in them? Let's start from the very beginning. You know what I'm saying? A very good place to start. Thank you kindly. Yeah. I believe there needs to be enforceable laws stronger than industry standards to incentivize productions into caring about taking care of the people who work for them or risk consequences. Both Sarah and Helena loved the camera and cinematography, and they both died senselessly. And the thing that struck me when I heard about both of these cases was how sad it was to lose women working in these positions that are so predominantly male. The celluloid ceiling study has tracked women's representation as directors, writers, producers, executive producers, editors, and cinematographers for over a decade. In 2021, out of the 250 top-grossing films, only 17% of the directors were women, 17% of the writers were women, 26% of executive producers were women, 32% of producers, 22% of editors, and only 6 percent of cinematographers. It should also be noted the American Society of Cinematographers, which was founded in 1919, only admitted their first female director of photography in 1980. Oh, God. The organization meant to advance and protect the art of cinematography remains one of the most exclusive and important societies in Hollywood in terms of prestige and influence. But since 1980, women have represented less than 5% of the membership. It is also important to note that in the 93 years of the Academy Awards, Rachel Morrison is the only woman ever to be nominated for Best Cinematography for her work on D. Rees' Mudbound in the 2018 Oscars. Wow. And I think that that's a big part of why I wanted to do this episode. Of course, the big thing was to highlight set safety, which is of paramount importance to me. But also, it's because these were two women who were trailblazing for future generations of girls and women, and they never got the chance to live up to their full potential. Helena was well on her way to becoming a prolific cinematographer, and Sarah Jones had the kind of passion, drive, and determination needed to become a legend in the field if she so chose. But now, neither of them will ever get the chance, and our industry is worse off for it. I believe these conversations are important to have, raising awareness, speaking authentically, and letting the rest of the world know about what happens behind the scenes of their favorite shows isn't me trying to spoil the illusion or tell the magician's tricks. It's literally me trying to help save lives. And at the end of the day, so many things went wrong. So many people were culpable, and it could fall under one of those they-all-did-it moments for me. But I think the bottom line is we have to continue having the conversations or change will never get made. 
Also, I just want Blanche to know that Jack Black was once in a PSA about Sarah Jones, which just makes sense because he's just so lovely. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Lauren Ash. Well, let me tell you, I, I have a lot of feelings. Um, I started writing notes uh, very chaotically. Yeah, uh, I like it. I'm trying to like I was trying to do two sort of sets of notes, and then I realized I was writing down stuff for me to to remember, and it wasn't necessarily something I was going to bring up. So I was like, "Well, how am I going to differentiate when I go back over this after?" And the answer is highlighters. Oh so I have God. pages Amazing. that are covered in highlighter and that are all over. So again, I could not be more excited. Here are my chaotic notes. In order, as the episode went, some may not seem relevant now. You may have forgotten about others, but take the journey with me. Lay them on us. Uh, 1993, Brandon Lee Blanche list. Of course. I had such a crush. That was devastating. Yeah. 93, 94 was a real blow to, to a young Christie. Uh, when the crew has to tear down a set that they've just built, do you think it hurts their feelings? Because it would hurt my feelings if I built this beautiful, like, everybody thinks it looks like a restaurant, and then the next day they're like, okay, we're done with it, you can trash it. I'd be like, ah, but wouldn't you use it later? Like, I, obviously, I couldn't do that for a living for many reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, the prop truck on Rust being unlocked. Is that a normal thing to not lock props up, especially when they're weapons? I mean, I don't know what the rules are there. I think that the weapons are typically locked up, but we do know that they had a safe. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it feels like, again, because it was being used in a lawsuit, it's always hard to know, too, because it can always feel leading. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I but get it's it. It's like they're leading it to something where that might actually not be abnormal. I don't yeah. know. Uh. Uh, how is there no limit on how many hours a day you can film? I just will never, ever understand why that's not a thing. Uh, oh God, again with that goddamn Blanche list. Longmire, Lou Diamond Phillips, and Robert Taylor. Oh. I loved that show. I was very sad when it ended. Um, the fact that an indie movie has a budget of $5 million is wild to me. We've yeah. come a long way from what I thought indie movies were. I pitched a one that we had made a budget for that was $1 million, thinking that would be like a, like a bonus. Like, oh, we can make it for a million. They're like, yeah. we don't make anything under three. <laughs> I was like, I okay. Like everybody I met with told me that. This was a few years ago. It's wild to me because I would love nothing more than to be like, yeah, I, I, I'll spend another two. Again, it's like, like it's, yeah, we can make that happen. Give yeah. me a crane. I'm ready yeah. to go. <laughs> yes. Um, the idea that there were no permits, the idea that there was no medic or safety meeting is wild. And I'm, I can't even begin, like, especially when you're on live tracks and you know that they're used. Uh, they said, uh, we knew we had 60 seconds to get off. Time it. Time it. It takes so little. Again, just like a few minutes in advance, plan things out, you know. Uh, people minutes down the tracks to warn, since it was clearly live tracks. You've got radios? 
Use them. And they go a long distance. Well, see? Yep. Um, every time you said CSX, I thought you were going to say CSI. Every single time. And to that I say, who are you? Who, who? Who, who? Uh, this whole thing has also made me wonder, what was the train filming safety on Stand By Me and Back to the Future? I know, I thought I'm, about that too. I'm now concerned about everybody involved with those films. I'm always concerned about uh, Christopher Lloyd just in general because because I adore him. Uh, my prediction is that this episode will inspire a new trend of the baby named Tressel. Uh, I officially no longer have any respect for William Hurt. Do we consider a Marley Matlin episode? We might. Uh... Autopsy uh, guru Cyril Wecht. 400 autopsies a year. It's not a race. It's not a race. It's not a race, man. That's more than one a day. That's the thing. They are saying 250 to 350 a year. It's like, yeah, because they don't, like, you should take your time. And also there's got to be some sort of, like, an emotional, like, thing and doing too many it's just stop it stop it it's not a race it's not i've i i did a million autopsies in my career so i'm the best it's like not necessarily doing too many could also make you sloppy not saying he was just saying absolutely uh the train engineer not being interviewed or like drug or alcohol tested in any way after a serious accident is not something i would consider a whoopsie doodle as that uh, guy seemed to think it was. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a police cover-up is always horrifying. <laughs> always. Doesn't matter what it involves. Always yeah. horrifying. Uh, the idea of so many people blaming Sarah in any way um, makes me want to choose violence. Yeah. Uh, Randall Miller is a douche. Fuck that guy. <laughs> and also, sure... Three years into his tenure probation, he fucks up and does something wrong. Don't send him back to jail? Fine. Add to his probation. It's, it's, it's that simple. Again, I'm not... Well, I'd say that perhaps being the white guy from Pasadena with a credit score of 800 actually helped you out in that case, didn't it? Because I highly doubt that somebody else who perhaps didn't have that level of privilege would have gotten away with just a warning. It's wild and i would love to know what his credit score is now uh my feistiness is here to stay and that's just how it's going uh sarah's parents winning a civil suit makes me happy but because i've been researching um civil oh, suits in yeah. uh the current case that i'm doing that'll be uh on the next um i'm sad to think that they could easily uh, get nothing. Not that the money is probably what they're in. Like, they're not interested in the money. They need somebody held liable. Yes. And I fully get that. But again, they deserve that money. So oh, it just yeah. pisses me off to think that everybody that should pay the money is probably never going to. Um, oh, again, CSX blaming Sarah. Oh, just when I thought... <laughs> I wasn't going to be angry at more people. Just stop blaming her. Stop blaming her. There are so many people that did something wrong 
that led to this. And, and she did her job. The answer she protected it, her, the on, equipment. Yes, she is not on the list of people who did things wrong in that scenario. Nope. nope. Um, also, finally, I am ready for director Lauren Ash to smash that celluloid ceiling. A hundred percent I am. And I don't know why I'm so passionate about it now, but I'm going to continue being passionate about it. I really, really am. Listen, yeah, I mean, I felt I felt very inspired. I feel inspired by all of this. You know, I feel like it's, it's one of those things too, where I, you know, being on Superstore for six years, we had a lot of the crew that were there from the very beginning. I, it's, it becomes a family. You see these people every day. You see these people more than you see your loved ones. Again, when you're working the hours, that you can work on shows. Again, we were overall pretty lucky on Superstore, but still, 12-hour days is no joke. You know what I mean? Like, that's still long days um, when a typical, you know, work work day is eight for most people. Um, yes. Or a lot of people, I should say. But um, the other thing I always say, and I forgot to put this in my notes, and I do want to mention just very quickly, is as an actor, I think uh, – Hair and makeup you're very close with because you spend time, you see them in the first thing when you get to work. They're in your space. You know, they're in your face, literally. Yeah. But the camera department, I feel like, is a is a department that you get very close to because they're also physically close to you. So, you know, you're a short distance from them most of the day. You're chit-chatting between takes, etc. So I think that that was part of me for me, too. Like, I just felt very protective of her always. But certainly when I started digging into this this research, I think it was I think for me, I always put myself or or with this, it was very easy for me to put myself in this situation. And I was sure. like, if this had happened to someone on our show, like. That would be devastating to me, like and I say that truly, honestly, like the idea that it could have been one of our people would have just it's it's I could I could go right now. It's very overwhelming to think about. And I think that again, if people who um are the ones with the high credit scores don't take the opportunity to speak up and talk about these people that make our jobs possible, that make us look good, and also are just the human beings that we spend time with every day. If you're not making a connection with people, then that says more about you than it does about them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Also, two very quick things. I just did yeah. some quick math. Cyril Wex said on his website he's done 30,000 autopsies in total, but I just did the math. on That would mean that he did 400 a year for 75 years, and that website, I think, came out when he was in his 80s, which means he would have had to have started when he was roughly 12. So that's, a, that's another thing I just picked up on now. And the other thing I just picked up on now is I want to also remind that Randall Miller was released from jail March 2016, and that documentary about trying to get him exonerated came out in 2018. You'd already gotten out of jail. The ego. You just had to be exonerated like you and I understand he's saying it affected his ability to work. Okay, I can give you credit for that. It was you you felt like you wanted to tell your story to try and get yourself, but the woman has died. It's yeah. over. The jig is up, man. It's over. You had 10 years yeah. probation. You're you're a smart guy, clearly. If you've gotten that far as a director, you clearly have some brain in your head. You know you weren't supposed to be working as a director. Give me a break. Yeah. You pushed it. To your point, it was time to do something else. Guess who had to? Hillary Schwartz. She tried to get her probation changed, and she has to work in another field now. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, again, like, I just, as you were talking, I was putting together, like, my God, he got out of jail early. It was over. Yeah, but you still had to have your friend make an entire documentary trying to prove that you were innocent. Yeah, that's well, just 
there's a there's a darkness there it feels like yeah and like do you think that there is a way that cyril is adding just any autopsy he's ever read i think so or I think that he just he, like exact like he just was like obviously i've done like this many and then I mean, it's also interesting, like the wording that he uses, because he talks about about like being involved in certain cases. And it's like, but you didn't do Elvis's autopsy. I don't right. believe. I don't believe. Right. He reviewed them. So then again, it's like, so wait a minute. To your point, is it a culmination of the ones you've actually performed as well as the ones you've reviewed? Because I guess that could be possible then. But if that is true. That's he didn't he didn't do the Jean Bonnet autopsy. No. He, he was on that. He, he consulted. He reviewed it on that yeah. documentary that got sued. Right. <laughs> right. By, <laughs> by someone who shall remain nameless. That's correct. But we still speak of often. <laughs> In private. Um, but yeah, anyway, Legal. I thank you for uh, letting me do this case. Again, it, it hits very close to home. And uh, I know that I was talking very quickly, stumbling over my words a lot. But it was truly just because I'm very passionate about all of it and wanting to get it all across. Well, look... Thank you for your research. As always, your deep dive was informative, <laughs> passionate, and on point. Thank you. And we don't deserve you. Bless you. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for taking this journey with us. We appreciate your support, as always. Make sure give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you're looking to snag any True Crime and Cocktails merch, head to TrueCrewMerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails gear. Everyone else is a pirate. There's even new Valentine-themed merch, so if you're interested, check it out, because Lauren just... Works so gosh darn hard on that store. So if you're interested, take a look. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about the next episode? I would. On the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Nicole Brown Simpson. Oh, that's right, dear listeners. I have spent the past week deep in the O.J. Simpson madness, and I want out. Uh, but Nicole Brown Simpson was our January patrons poll. And if you would like a say in next month's episode poll, head on over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. You get the episode polls. We do extra episodes. We do monthly live Q&As. It's a lot of fun. If you're looking for extras, that's the place to go. Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Sarah Jones. Good night, Michael Landon. <laughs> <laughs>